Outstanding. Thank you. You ready to go live? Yeah. All right. You live? We're live? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Bubby. Mm. Hey, what's going on, YouTube? If you're watching this on YouTube Live, it's Saturday. Uh, I know it's an odd time for us to be on a, doing a podcast on Saturday. But we have some special guests for you today, okay? If you're listening, okay? If you're listening to this on audio, it's probably Wednesday, so it's your normal Wednesday episode. I'm imagining that's how this is going to work out. So, YouTube, thank you guys for being here for this special episode with some very special guests. We have got the one and only Caleb. Dad <laughs> Shuffler in the house. Along with his father, and no stranger to the 3 of 7 podcast or 3 of 7 project, our brother Paul Wilder. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Is that Paul Wilder? Is that Paul? Is it Junior? Nope. Nope, it's just straight Paul Wilder. Huh? Donald Paul, my dad's Donald. My okay. granddad's Paul. Oh, okay, okay. Half and half. <laughs> uh, um, What's up with you, Gav Wall, man? What's happening, brother? Not much. Well, what a pleasure it is to have, to have you on the podcast today. You know, I named you after a duck. A Gad Wall is a duck. Um, And I kind of feel like... We're, we've got the, me and you with the beards, we've got the Duck Dynasty thing going on in here today, man. Yeah, I just uh, probably don't have quite as many ducks, especially since I ain't hunted at all this season from all the running. <laughs> oh, man, I had I had a duck hunt scheduled this year, and I had, to, I had to cancel it. I overbooked myself. I was really bummed about that, man. I was really bummed about that because this place that I go duck hunting, the the one time a year I do go, it's in Oklahoma, and it's just unbelievable. I mean, you actually see thousands of ducks, and you're just killing ducks the whole time. Like, yeah, I don't I don't know anything about that. I know about you know seeing them on the Coosa River about six miles up, just you know probably heading to Mexico, and they're like, oh look, hey, there's ducks up there, but uh, they ain't they ain't coming down. Yeah, uh, so when y'all duck hunt around here, it's I mean... It's more just bird watching, actually. It's, you, you put out a bunch of decoys and get really cold and walk in the water and stuff, but it's mainly just looking at some ducks fly real high. How do you stick with it, man? I mean, if you're not killing ducks, I mean, is it just the 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 thought of potentially killing a <laughs> duck? I mean, Yeah, I mean, it's like when you finally do it right, and they do right, so like trying to compare it to deer hunting because you do that a lot more traditional than you do the duck hunting but uh like when you deer hunt let's say you're stalking an animal or something like that and you are trying to judge the wind and you have an idea of where it's going to go and where they're going to come out or whatever and you guess right and you i don't know it just everything goes according to plan that's uh -huh. how it is when you do everything when you're duck hunting so you set up your decoys you set it up based on the wind and then if they come in and cup up right into your decoys, it's one of the best feelings in the world. But, you know, I can't speak from very much experience because well, that rarely happens. I well, talked to Corn the other day. Uh, him and Buck went hunting 
and uh, they had they had a good setup. You know, had eight eight ducks fly over. They missed every one of them. <laughs> good night. Missed all I know corn used to hunt the same place I used to hunt, so he may have been seeing the same ducks that <laughs> well, I missed at. Corn so. <laughs> was probably shooting at those ones you were talking about, flying yeah. six miles high. That's you know, <laughs> slinging some pellets up there. Oh yeah, well you just got to throw the shells. You got to spend some money somehow, so you well, might as well sling some shells. Up yeah, there. that's true. Duck hunting. Talk about spending money. Duck hunting is like the golf. Of the hunting world. It you, is 100%. You got to have all this stuff, man. That's what was crazy when I'd go out with this dude in Oklahoma and hunt, and I see the amount of crap it takes to do this. Like, I mean, you either need a boat or or a massive buggy. You know, you have to build a blind. You've got your decoys. You've got your calls. You've got your shotguns. You've got your – then you got your dog – and all that comes along with that, it, I mean, it is a massive operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the decoys, usually if you get good decoys, they're probably around, for half a dozen really good decoys, you're spending close to $100. And then, you know, half a dozen decoys, if you're actually killing a lot of ducks and you're in a big open area, like a big lake or something, then you're going to need a lot more than half a dozen decoys. Oh, yeah. You may need, you know, three dozen decoys you put out. Now, not every time, but, I mean, it's, it's insane how much money you spend so quickly. And An you old just shotgun like, gets expensive, too. A oh, nice shotgun. Oh, yeah, because, like, you need, so if you, especially if you hunt somewhere, like, in the cold weather, then you want inertia-driven shotguns mm-hmm. because the gas-powered, you know, it messes up and won't go off or you drop it in the water because you, if you do haven't dropped your shotgun in the water and you've duck hunted then i don't know where you're hunting because i do it all the freaking time yeah. now i don't fall in as much as my cousin jacob that sucker goes in every single time we go we're leaving packing up he's under he's under the water immediately he uh jacob actually he used to he hunts with corn sometimes but not all the time him corn and shorty sometimes hunt together sounds but. like he needs to go to seal training he likes that cold water, obviously. <laughs> nah, he just, he just can't keep his feet. I don't know why he has so much trouble when he gets in them waders, but he goes in every time. But I can't say anything. Every time my hands get in that water, I was telling oh, yeah. Dad about this the other day, I throw up every time because it's like it gets so cold when it's like 18 degrees and your hands go in the water. I'm like, that pain of them freezing, I throw up every single time. Dang. But I don't, I'm just telling you, man. Man, called a puking. <laughs> Dang, Gadwall. <laughs> Every single time. Uh, yeah, man. I I don't. So I don't understand how people how you do it. I don't understand how you duck hunt. I mean, how many how many ducks do you if you hunted hard in a season here in Georgia? How many ducks would you kill? I know some people that do it a lot better than I do, and they kill. I mean, the main thing you're killing around here is wood ducks and mallards. And so they kill, you know, maybe their limit every weekend of wood ducks, and then sometimes they kill one or two mallards. But usually, I mean, you may kill, like I said, I think a limit of wood ducks is six wood ducks. And so you can only kill six a day. And usually people only get to hunt on Saturdays because of, like you talked about, how big of an operation it is to get everything out there. It's like, you know... The 100-mile race, when we did that, I mean, it was the same start time. Is what it, I mean, I've been on the Coosa River at probably 1 o'clock in the morning before, just getting to the spot, and we had to pick up the boat over a beaver dam and then throw it over there and 
then throw out the decoys and then take a nap and eat and all that kind of stuff crazy, before you man. even get to start. So you're wore out before you start. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't. I mean, I just don't know how people do it around here because when I go duck hunting, there's a guy that's being paid to be there that does all the decoys. He has the dogs. I, I don't have to do anything, dude, when I go duck hunting. I don't have to blow a call. Like, all I do is just steadily shoot ducks all day. (laughs) That's all I do. And so, but but I'm watching this dude, this guide, you know, that, you know, he's having to get in and out of the water and do the decoys and his hands are frozen and and he didn't, he doesn't puke when his hands get cold, but. uh, (laughs) That's a unique trait I have. (laughs) I'm like, man, this is way too much daggone work. Like, even if I lived in the duck flyway where these cats are at, I'm like, nah, I wouldn't do this. Well, it's worse there. Like, so my cousin Jacob said before opening weekend, he went to Arkansas. And so the Thursday before it opened on Saturday, he said that there was somebody parked at the boat ramp. He slept in his truck from Thursday after he got off work from Thursday until Saturday. So there's obviously something to it. And then, so that guy that did that, he was waiting all that time, and the spot he was trying to get to was like a well-known spot or something. I don't know. He wanted to be there first. Yeah, he wanted to be there first. So the guy that came that morning, hadn't been waiting in line, showed up, because if you get to the spot first, it's your spot. Shows up. There's a guy that comes up, puts on a pair of new bounces, and grabs his shotgun and sprints to the spot. Oh There's through gosh, the woods man. on the public land. It gets there before the guy that had been there since Thursday. Holy smokes. So there must be something to it. I mean, if somebody's going to suffer that greatly and wait that long to to get in a dang spot to kill a duck, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's weird how there's so many different things out there that people really, really love to do. And we just, I just can't understand it. We talk, We compared duck hunting with golf. Golf's the same thing. I'm like, why on earth, if you had a day off, would you go and dress up in your silly clothes <laughs> and go hit a, hit a ball into a hole? It, it's literally mind-boggling to me. Now, now I'd be more apt to, to duck hunt than I would to golf. There's so many things, though, man, that people just are obsessed with that it's like, you just, it's, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think causes that? Well, I'm, it's a passion. It's not, it, or it's, a, what, what is the Mossy Oaks or Real Tree slogan? It's a uh, obsession, not a passion or something. Oh, I don't know yeah, at I all mean, what it is. But yeah, I. People I'm, get obsessed over it. Oh, yeah. It's, I can say for me, it's the amount of work that you have to put into it when it comes to duck hunting. That's why I like it so much more than deer hunting or any other kind of hunting I've done, is because of how much more work goes in on your day. That you go work. Like, you show up. Like I said, you'll show up. I've never been, I don't think I've ever been to a spot later than getting there at 4 o'clock in the morning. And so that means I'm already drove an hour to wherever I was going or whatever. Well, I had way more success duck hunting. Yeah, he did. Than anybody. Well, that, y'all um, went duck shooting. He knows. That doesn't count. But we we went, we, we put corn, we grew corn. In a pond that we would bring down a little bit and bring up. Now, was this in South Georgia? Yes, sir. Allegedly. Allegedly put up corn. And <sighs> my my granddaddy and my uncle would just, we would rotate ponds, and we wouldn't hunt them, but once or twice a year. 
We go to that pond either in the morning or in the evening and then go to the next pond and then go to the next pond and then go to the next pond. And most of the time when we went to those ponds, my Uncle Ronald or my granddad had already scouted it and they knew this is going to be a good hunt. And you were pretty much guaranteed, and it was mostly wood duck, they were going to come in and you were going to be able to do some business. And we didn't use a different gun. I used a 20 gauge that I shot quail with, I shot dove, and I shot duck. We drove two-wheel drive trucks because the fields, if they were too wet to get uh, if you had to have a four-wheel drive truck to get in the field, you're going to ruin your crop anyway. You need to stay out of the field till it dries. It was a lot simpler, but I killed some ducks. That's where these guys are screwing up. Yeah, they're working They've too hard. overcomplicated the whole thing. <laughs> they're working that's too the hard. fun part, though. Like That's when you actually have it. Like even every single morning, if we go, I mean, I've be I've been skunked plenty, 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 plenty of times. But like even when I get skunked, I'm like, man, this absolutely sucked to do all this, set everything up, and then just pack it all up and do absolutely nothing. But yeah. it was still a good time. Caleb brings a whole new meaning to embrace the suck. Like he doesn't just embrace it; he embroiders it and like puts it on. <laughs> <laughs> Know. It's, just, it's just a fun time. I mean, just because also the I difference seen, between that and deer hunting is you're in there with your buddies just hanging out, chilling. Well, that's true. It, it can be cool in a duck blind. Yeah. Yeah. One time I pulled up over at Paul's house, Caleb had a bucket of ice water out there, and he was just putting his hands in it and puking. <laughs> just reps, just puking. Did it about 15 times. I wasn't there. Nice. <laughs> Got to just keep putting in the reps. You don't, wanna, you don't want it to catch you by surprise on, you know, duck blind day. <laughs> Good night. So are you uh are you kinda are you kinda how do you feel? Are you kinda glad that you got this race under your belt and that like you can wind down training? Not that you're gonna stop running, but now that you have some more time opened up, you don't have to stay so focused on training. Are you looking forward to that? Because it's still duck season, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It ends in uh at the end of January. <coughs> but I mean, to be honest with you, that just made it worse. Like, finishing that race just made it worse. Really? Like, I will not probably – I I enjoy duck hunting, but I'm just not in a stage right now where I want to go do that instead of going and running. Mm. Like, running sucks a lot worse, and I enjoy it a lot more because okay. there's a lot more payout. I'll tell you, I get done with a run every time I go out. I don't always kill ducks. Yeah, yeah. And That's so, a good point. And while I got you here too, man, uh, I wanted to talk to I wanted to talk to both you guys, but especially Caleb about the trades mm-hmm. because I'm a huge advocate for trades. And you're an electrician, right? Yes, sir. So, you know, I'm I'm I get so sick of seeing the general population moan and groan about the fact that they're freaking broke and there's no way to make money and and you know it's just such a such a hard you know place to be able to make a living in and you're just freaking constantly broke and poopy pants and you can't have the things you want out of life and the I'm all the time I'm thinking like no if you will just learn a skill if you will just learn a trade you can literally Make as much money as you want to make. Oh, yeah. You can work as much as you want to work. So, you know, Paul is a teacher. What what drove you into the into the trades? 
well, versus going a more traditional, a more traditional route. I mean, because trade trades has for a long time been viewed as non-traditional. Even when I was growing up, if you were going into the trades, it was a whole different pipeline in high school. It was like you were like the dumb person. You know, how stupid are we? Mm-hmm. How freaking stupid are we, man? But what drove you to go that route? And it seems to be working out for you. Yeah, yeah, it's going well. So uh, <clears throat> I went to Georgia Highlands for a little while after um, I got out of high school. So I was, it isn't because I'm stupid that I went into the trade. So that's, you know, like you said, they have the dumb stereotype or whatever. It's not because I'm stupid. I mean, I graduated with a 4.0 and a Zell Miller scholarship, which basically pays for all your college. And um, so I started going to Georgia Highlands, and I uh, definitely wasn't as diligent as I should have been when I was there, but I was working and doing the classes and all that kind of stuff. But it just – I was going for engineering because I was really good at physics. Physics mm-hmm. just made sense because chemistry, when we took those classes, it was just like, okay, it's this is all fake crap. Like it was all just uh, – possibilities but physics was like okay this is how you calculate how fast this car is going or whatever it's mm-hmm. real life's math and so it just clicked with me and so i was like well that's what engineering is is a bunch of physics so i was like i can do that well then i started you know looking up and figuring out like what jobs people actually have in the engineering world and i was like man this is like you know not necessarily what i want to do like i just and there's nothing wrong with it. Everybody, you know, has their own thing that they enjoy doing. I just wanted to be more hands-on, I guess. And some of the jobs just didn't seem that fun. And so I was like, okay, well, I don't know what I want to do. So I changed my major to just general, basically, or whatever was it called. Business is what you did, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, I, and then it went to regular, whatever the normal one is, no major or something like that. Yeah. General studies, that's what it is. Anyways, uh... I went from that to that, and I was working at Chick-fil-A at the time and uh, just basically paying for some of my, you know, just little things I was doing, getting gas and all that kind of stuff and hanging out and uh, my girlfriend at the time, you know, hanging out with her and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I was working there, and I was like, you know what, let me look into some of this lineman stuff. And so I started looking at some of the lineman stuff, but the only thing – and I wasn't a huge fan with that was how many uh how it wasn't separate from I guess big industries. So it was every time I looked at the ones around here anyways, it always had a lot more ties to unions and ties yeah. to all these other yeah, things. Yeah, you and can't you can't go start your own business as a lineman. Right, right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the union. I just did not want it. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, let me look at these other fields. And then my pastor, Pastor uh, James Cordell, he talked to... Um, Otherwise known as Jeff Cordell. <laughs> <laughs> Story behind that. Okay. Yeah. But uh, he said, um, you know, he had some stuff get done at the church at the time, and he talked to um, my old boss and asked him, hey, like, y'all need help? And my old boss said, yeah. And so he says, well... I know this kid, he's a hard worker, and, you know, would you like to give him a job? You know, here's his number and all this other kind of stuff. Then James called me and told me to call him. And so I called him, and I ended up, you know, long story short, we I ended up working for him for a while, for three years. And in that three years, I fell in love with the electrical work that I was doing just because mm. I was like, man, this is – I see my finished product every day. That's the biggest thing for me is you could get done and see your product. Yeah. 
And so that was another thing that was frustrating with a lot of other jobs. You think about it, it's not concrete. It may be more abstract, you know, how it looks when it's done. But with this, I was like, okay, I know what it's supposed to look like. I can see how it's going to look. And I'm helping people build their dream homes, wiring them up, doing it the way I would want my house done, and enjoying work every single day because I'm still hanging out. I mean, you basically hang out with guys all day while you're working. Yeah, yeah. And you can work your tail off and still talk the entire time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not bad. So, um, I mean, I just have stuck with it. And then I went to uh, Toyo Tire for a little while to basically get insurance to have my child. But then after that, I'm working with another guy now, and I'm having a great time. So I've just really fallen in love with the work, um, the camaraderie that's around it. But, yeah, I would definitely suggest going into the trades because, like you said, the money is the money's there. I mean, we turn down work all the time because we don't have enough people. Yeah. And, I mean, we're in Rockmart. Yeah, it's which me. is a dead zone. It's me, my boss, and two – Firefight, they're full-time firefighters, and they work with us part-time, and then one other guy. And so we can't do all the work, and we still, you know, are just running rampant trying to keep up with everything. Yeah, it's literally endless. You mm-hmm. can take it as far. Like, you, you, you get the opportunity to take it as far as you want to take it. Yep. I mean, you can just keep working with this dude, or five, six, seven years from now, you can decide to branch off and start your own operation and then you can grow that literally as it, it's it's an infinite opportunity because the work's always going to be there. Mm-hmm. It's all and it's always there's always going to be more of it there it's than you can even get to because of the electric car crap that everybody's coming up with. You know, it's they're just making it worse. Like me and John Hogue were talking about, they're making it worse on the grid, which is just giving us more work. <sighs> so, like you know, John said, we have complete job security. Because oh, yeah. the people in charge just keep adding more and more to the electrical grid. So we're like, okay, well. Well, I mean, you know what, dude? Ain't nobody, ain't no homeowner going to touch nothing that's got electricity running through it. That's why, like, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said if he was also in the trades. And he was like, if I could recommend one trade to get into, it's electrician. Oh, yeah. Because, you know. I'll get into crawl space and work on my plumbing a little bit. You know, I, I, I'll 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 work on my HVAC, you know, a little bit here and there. Just, you know, I'll YouTube it, whatever. If it's got electricity running through it, though, I'm not touching it. I'm calling a professional. I used to. Till I, now I got family. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't messing with it, man. So it's I, I just commend you for doing that, man. It's um and I and I wish more people would do it. And I wish people wouldn't. I wish people wouldn't be so in their when they get in their thirties or their forties or their fifties, and they're they're broke. They can't have the things they want. They're working some freaking crap job. I wish they wouldn't be so closed minded to learning something like what you've learned, man. Like anybody who wants to put in the effort and the work, and anybody who wants to seek out the opportunity to learn these things, you can you can learn it at any phase in life. It's never too late. And I just, I don't think that, I, I think that people stay in a rut their whole life financially and in their career because I think people believe that it's not supposed to be hard. 
or, or they they can't understand that like no they can't understand that if you actually want to achieve some success financially or in your professional life it's going to take effort which means it's going to be uncomfortable effort is not comfortable and so they just don't get it they just think it's 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 not supposed to well we live in America right it's not supposed to be that hard it doesn't matter how free you are it doesn't matter what country you're in if you want to have success it's going to be hard yep I period think something too uh, you know I I never forget we had my uh, cousin who works for SpaceX she works for, uh she's like the head of Dragon Project or Dragon Net or something that they shoot manned rockets to the space station she graduated from Georgia Tech. Her husband graduated from Georgia Tech. He works for NASA. And I had her come speak to the school about STEM. And she said something to the – we were talking about women of STEM and that kind of stuff. And she said something that I thought, wow. She basically told the girls, don't, don't decide you want to be a rocket scientist because I'm telling you you can do that. You have to find your passion and do what you want to do. And that's the thing with Caleb, when, when he left Toyo and went back to the electrical work, I could tell there was so much more peace and joy. He said, you know, when we went on vacation, we went on a, we go to Thanksgiving, every year we go to Destin for Thanksgiving, and he said, you know, I'm looking forward to the break and being with family, but I'm not, like, going to be miserable going back to work, because every day there's something different, every yeah. day there's different challenges. And what I would encourage people is, like, Hard is relative. Getting a degree is hard. Not getting a degree, learning a trade, and working hard is hard. And then what I told Caleb, what did I tell you at the very beginning? It's not what you make, but what you spend, right? And so you can make a living doing a lot of different things as long as you keep yourself under control and don't act crazy spending. But what I think a lot of times people do is they look around at everybody else instead of looking inside you know, Galatians chapter 6 talks about in the message, you know, don't compare yourself to other people and don't think too highly of yourself, but find out what the Lord's called you to do and give yourself wholly to that. And I think a lot of times we, we, we even over-spiritualize that. Whatever you're doing, do it hard. Work. Do yeah. it hardly as unto the Lord. The reason Caleb's been successful is because he works hard. When he was at Chick-fil-A, he worked hard and moved up. When he was at the other place, he worked hard and got his own truck. When he was at Toyo, he was producing more than most of the people around him. And that's what helps you be successful. And you'll stand out. It doesn't matter what you do. If you do it heartily as unto the Lord and you don't grow weary in well-doing, you're going to reap. And the reason that works is because it's in there. That's what, that's what I was going to say was me and Blake and Dad had a conversation on a run a while back. And um, I told Dad this, and then I talked to Blake and Dad about it on the run. But uh, a lot of times I feel like we think when we pray for, uh, you know, God to bless us with whether it be money or something else, you know, whatever you're asking for. Um, he definitely wants to do it, obviously. I mean, he wouldn't tell you to ask for things if, you know, and if he doesn't, you know, won't, if he thinks that's going to be bad for you, he won't give it to you. But the whole thing is if... Why? Why is he? Why does he have to grant you something else extra other than the sowing and reaping aspect that's in the Bible? So why does he owe you anything more 
than creating a system where if you put in hard work, you get in good results. Yeah, man. And so why do you expect more? And He's so, made that available to exactly. you. Exactly. And then everything else, he still will do mm-hmm. above and beyond what that is. Mm-hmm. And so it's just all a bonus. But if you just sit there and say, hey, God made this world for me to prosper and be better than everybody else if I'm willing to put in the work. And that's not, you know, talking about obviously workspace faith or anything like that. That's just talking about on this earth. If that, that's a law a, of nature. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a law like of gravity. nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But nature was created by God, and that's the whole thing. We exactly. talked about it before you got here. We were talking about the the parable of the sower is the kingdom of God. Like a man who went out and and, and it starts. The Bible says, keep your heart with all diligence. So hard work starts in the heart first. If you keep your heart with all diligence, then your heart will lead your mouth, and your mouth will lead your life. And that's the whole, like Romans 10, 9, and 10, that if thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved, set free, delivered. That's the whole kingdom, is take care of your heart, get your mouth to follow your heart, and be a doer of what that is. And when you sow and re- when you sow, when you plant a seed and you take, you tend to it, you take care of it, you make sure there's no weeds, you water it, you do whatever you got to do. And then some of that you have no control over it. Cause sometimes you can't water it. You have to trust God to water it. Right. And other people sometimes have to help you. When I worked on a farm, we had to get other people sometimes to crop dust for us and spray for worms. Cause we couldn't get in the field cause it was too wet. And I think that's one of the things that it doesn't matter you know, our society has got to get back to the basics of the principles of the Word of God because it doesn't matter if you're an electrician, if you're an administrator, a school teacher, if you're, uh, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If it doesn't line up with the kingdom purposes and principles that God has already established, He's not reestablishing and changing the rules for you based on your heart. Yeah, yeah. Your heart has to be, you know, everything was made by Him and for Him and without Him. Nothing consists. And so I think one of the things that, you know, really impressed me and blessed me with Caleb is when he, when he, when he and Krista got pregnant, when she got pregnant, a switch flipped in that dude. I mean, a switch immediately. He's already a hard worker and a good dude. But when we'd go on runs, he'd talk about how he wants her to see. He wants her to set a higher standard. And not to look around and just see the laziness and the, you know, the complacency of society around him. If he wants her to see that, the only way he can make sure she sees that is if he is that. And that's mm-hmm. I'll say publicly right now. I'm more proud of that than I am anything else. You know that he's done. Yeah, no, I love that man. Yeah, and all of that, obviously, I completely agree with. And yeah, when we talk about the laws of nature and we talk about reality and and cause and effect and and the things that are inescapable, all of that is God's design, right? So that's how we tie that. That's how. That's what I mean when I say those things. It's the way it was designed to be, and ultimately, I think that people when they bump up against that feeling of, ooh, this is a little bit hard. This is this is getting, this is a little more than I wanted. Like, this is a little more stress than I wanted to bear. When they bump up, bump up against that, 
then they they back off just a hair. And that's why they never end up achieving or getting anything, man. Because that that work is always going to feel uncomfortable. And it's always going to be more than you want to bear. Yep. Always, man. Like, even for me, to to this very day, the work that God has called me into doing is more than I want to bear every single day. I'm just being honest with you. It's more than I want to bear, but I still operate in it, and I still... I still endeavor to do the work that I've been called to do in spite of the uncomfortableness that it, you know, puts into my life. It's like there's no way of freaking around it, man. And I think I think that's one of the awesome things about running a hundred miles is it gives you it gives you a, a real repetition of that in a controlled environment is is it gives you a repetition of exactly what we're talking about here right now but we're talking about this in terms of things in life that matter the things that we've been called to do the work we've been given to do um the purpose that we serve within within the body of Christ within our per, per, and it's and that lumps everything your your personal life your professional life all of that a hundred mile race, man, it gives you this vacuum that you can enter into and you bump up against that, oh, this is more than I want to bear. But you just move through it anyways. And people ask all the time, why the crap would you run a hundred miles? I just posted a video on YouTube today. How to recover from a 100-mile race. Well, half the comments on there are just joking comments because people don't understand. Why would you do this? It's, it's not, honestly, it's, for me personally, it's not for the love of running. Like, Why would you do this? And I think that's what the episode's title. So, you know, I'm interested to hear from both of you guys. Why would you do this? Because it, it, takes, it's, it takes a huge investment in terms of your time and even your money uh, to train for this and then to show up and to actually execute it. And it's a big endeavor. And I don't care how, I talked about this the other day, I don't care how mainstream ultra running gets, running 100 miles will never be any easier. I don't care how mainstream it gets. I don't care how many people have ran 100 miles it don't get it's not any easier today than it was 20 years ago when there was just 20 dudes walking around and they were the only 20 people in the world that had ever ran a 100 mile race. It's freaking hard, man. So, why? I mean, Paul, dude, you've been teaching all your life, man. You know, you've got a you've got a solid family, a secure career. You know, you you understand God's word. You're you're very, you're in a solid place in life. Why the crap would you go do something like this, man? I think you know one of the things. I always overarching. I always want to push myself. I don't want to make excuses about getting older. I get annoyed by things about. Um, 
I mean, the reality is I'm not as fast or strong as I used to be. But I don't. I still want to be as fast and as strong as I can be. Mm-hmm. And so that that's one thing overarching. But honestly, it started watching you at the Cocodona. Um, and then Blake signing up for the 100, listening to Blake talk about some of what you went through. I watched a lot of that live or, like, watched the live feeds later after. <clears throat> and uh, just it really – to be honest, and you might not feel this way, I just watching you do that. I knew it was the new, it was a new arena for you. And I'm like, why is he doing this? Like his best race is these last man standing where you can be intentional, you know, patient, present, deliberate, and you know it's going to pay off. Watching you win those, you know, mid state miles and that being your arena, and then all of a sudden you're going out west and do it, you know. And the challenge is, honestly, I'm sitting there thinking when you got close to the end, like. The fact that you just took quitting off the table and you knew you, you know, your feet, feet were obliterated and all that kind of stuff, and I got to thinking, well, I had attempted 100 and made a silly decision, wasn't present and deliberate and hurt myself and didn't wind up finishing it. Did a great 50-miler the next year, and I had pretty much decided, hey, I'll just do 50-milers. Okay, know, I didn't know that. It's a one-day deal. I, You know, I can – Training, you know, it takes a lot more training, a lot of back-to-back long runs, takes time away from my family. I got a kid running cross-country I'm trying to invest in. I just – I can't train for 100. Yeah. So, after watching the Cocodona, talk, you know, hearing Blake talk about doing one, and then Caleb and I had started running together. So, I felt less stress about being away from home because even though I was away from home, I was running with one of my sons. So, mm-hmm. I could – train again and Caleb and I for New Year's it was 2023 and Caleb had run six or seven miles six was his six miles started running again in December so he started running December a little bit and ran six miles and I said well I'm gonna run 23 and I was running 23 miles for 2023 Caleb didn't even understand that's why I was doing that and uh that was not communicated yeah well um so I was just thinking you know I wasn't in great shape I I had already run that 50-miler, and then I had tapered and pretty much was running every now and then. And uh, But I was just going to run 23 and run and walk and do what I needed to do. So we ran a mile pretty easy and then walked like for five-tenths to seven. Uh, Five-hundredths. Five-hundredths to seven-hundredths to recover each mile. And about we were about three, or five, three to four miles in, and I, I said – Caleb was talking about doing like 13 of it with me. So I was just going to go out and back the 13, and then I was just going to keep running. And Caleb was like, no, I'll just see how long I can stay. And once he said that, I knew he's doing the whole thing with me. No food. No food in my bag. Yeah, no food in his bag. Didn't even plan on doing that. I had him cut. (laughs) Yeah, early on, you don't understand how important that (laughs) is. No, I learned that real quick. I gave him a gel, and he was like, got all spry. So he ran 23 miles with me that uh, New Year's, and – we ran at 12 degrees. It was at, We went at the berry and ran with it with 12 degrees and freezing. My glasses froze over. It was crazy. And uh, his hands must not have got cold because he no, didn't, they didn't. Up. I, was, I was running. <laughs> you move a lot less in duck hunting yeah. than you do in running. But we really did. Uh, that really did help me feel better about taking a challenge. And I saw the Daytona 100. Caleb and I both grew up going to Daytona. I didn't think Caleb was – I didn't have any expectation that anybody was going to do it with me. Um I just felt like I needed to sign up for something. So in March, I signed up. I told uh, John Hogue I was signing up, and he had done 100 with some of his friends the year before, and he said, I'll do it. So we all three signed up the same day, and uh, and 
from March on, that was just what our focus was. And I wound up, I, I had a, we had a boy that died of cancer. His name is Malachi Walker. He was a kid in my school who was a fifth grader. He got cancer when he was a third grader. Eventually came back to school in a wheelchair. Um, just a great kid. One time he said, you know Michael Jackson? I was like, yes, sir, I know Michael Jackson. He said, you know that song, Beat It? And I was like, yeah. He said, that's what I'm going to do with this cancer. And that was his attitude all the time. Anytime you were around him, he was, you know, even though his body was being emaciated by treatment and all this stuff, he uh, he just always had a great attitude. And, you know, he passed away last year. And so when he passed away, um, I had somebody in my office make me a shirt, a Malachi Strong shirt and a bandana that said Malachi Strong. I wore that bandana in my pocket. And uh, kind of had that in my mind with him. He was number eight. And number seven is the number of completion. So I always, when I spoke at his funeral, I said, Malachi taught me a new meaning of continuing and going and having grit. And it was that when you think you're done, with set, seven being the number of completion, when you think you're done, you've got one more. And it's so funny because we ran this 100-mile race. We ran 101 miles. And so we ran 100 miles. Hmm plus one more in the race. And uh, so it, it was a special thing. And uh, basically it was just, you know, motivated by just always, you know, wanting to be stronger. You know, when I ran that uh, 23 miles with Dad, we, uh, like I said, I left there and, you know, I was planning on running 13. And, you know, I've run 12 in cross-country practice and all that kind of stuff in high school. And so when I was running that, just planning on running 13, I was like, okay, I won't need any food, obviously, because, you know, it's just 13 miles. Which now I take food for thirteen miles, but back then, you know, I I just didn't. If you don't think about it, you don't need it. But you know, once until you, you do, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But anyways, so I was good, and then we hit like mile. I think it was at like mile twelve, and I had already decided that I was going to do the whole twenty three with Dad. And um, like I said, I didn't know why we were doing twenty three. I was just like, you know, why are we not doing a marathon? Because that's an actual, you know, attainable number that somebody has set out to be a number of a run that you do. Yeah. And I was like, but okay, whatever. I'll just do what he does. And so he never asked for clarification. No, I didn't. <laughs> I asked that after we were done, but anyway, <laughs> no, actually it was the post. You made a post or whatever. And it said, we ran 23 for 2023. And Krista told me about it. And I was like, Oh, is that why we did that? But anyways, I was running and I was like, man, this is I'm getting to a low point. Like this is absolutely awful. And we're running freaking 10 30 pace. Like, why does this hurt so bad? And then, uh, he gave me a gel, and I ate that gel, and I was like, holy crap. Like, what was in this thing? It felt like one of those, you know, now, like one of those caffeine gels. Like, I, I was gave just you sprung. one with caffeine. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I don't know. I was just sprung up with energy. I was like, is this all it takes to run a long ways? You just got to eat during this thing? I can do that. And so I started doing that, and it was, I mean, it's been fun ever since. So why? So why did you? Why did you decide to commit to hundred to a hundred miles? Because tw- twenty three miles is like way not 100 miles well that's a pretty big commitment it's, oh yeah when your distance pr is 23 miles to shortly after that commit to running 100 miles i mean why what made you what made you commit to that so i had planned like after i ran that 23 miles with dad once i hit mile i think it was 17 my legs just became like automatic like it was like i can do this all day i can't bend over anymore yeah. And I can't, you know, I went to pick up a stick on the trail that was in the way because it was pouring rain and nasty weather and there was trees blown everywhere. So we were climbing over trees and stuff. 
But I was trying to move stuff out of the way for the bikers because they're a bunch of whiny babies on the Silver Comet anyways. But uh, I was, you know, trying to be nice, and I bent over, and I did, couldn't even reach the stick. I was like, oh, nope, not doing that mm-hmm. anymore. And so I was like, I can just run, though. Like, that didn't bother me. The running didn't bother me. And then eventually it became the walking that bothered me. So when we started walking the, you know, tenth of a mile instead of the 500s, I told Dad, I said, you can walk. I'll just run because I can keep running, but I can't keep starting and stopping. And so I was like, it's only for 23 miles. I'm just going to keep a really slow run while you're walking. And so it just, I just loved that automatic feeling. And so I was like, okay, well, I mean, that's going to be amplified in a hundred mile, right? I mean, you're just, you're just going to be automatic for a lot more. That was the first time you had kind of tapped into that, Mm -hmm. that realization. Exactly. Because before that, when I was in high school, the longest run I had ever done was either 10 or 12 miles. I can't remember, but that was it. 605 pace so it's a little different you don't feel automatic yeah, it's worked different. the whole time yeah, yeah <laughs> you're working the whole time for sure but also it wasn't that distance where you start feeling automatic because for me that happens at like 17 miles except for during the race it happened way later but okay well yeah i want to get into the race and talk about how it went for you guys and what you guys learned from this endeavor and challenges that you had to overcome and highs and lows and all that good stuff um did you guys use hoist drank hoist the whole way did you really yes sir i had hoist on my right side had some uh some carbohydrate drink on the left side and water in the camel back yep and then uh toward the end i didn't want to i didn't want another jail so i told them to start putting hoist in my camel back so i'd have a little more, bit more calories but i ran that 50 mile ran a 12 and a half hour 50 miler on the georgia jewel and i drank hoist the whole way exclusively along with having some some gels and some real food and uh yeah i love it yeah it's a great product man it really is did you use it caleb yes sir yeah i was like dad said it was just one of my hydration drinks and i mean it was it tastes good like y'all always say it's uh i mean it obviously hydrates you you wouldn't be able to run as long as we did if it didn't hydrate you and i mean it's i used it the whole time during training that was the main thing that i used to hydrate myself on those long back-to-back runs i used hoist and it worked every single time it kept my calories up even if like like dad said when your stomach starts getting down you can just be like okay well at least i know i got some calories in this hoist yeah Yeah, you're getting something yeah i will say one other thing about hoist that you know a lot of times we may not get a lot get a chance to say so i subscribe and i get you know once a month and uh get some discounts because i work you know cause as a teacher but that one time an order messed up they sent my order to another guy named paul and his order to me and i told him you know just give me send me what i didn't get because some of them were duplicated like he got some of the same stuff we got and i was like i don't need they just sent me a whole enough shipment mm-hmm. so we wound up having plenty for the race you know because i get the powders and then i get variety of the drinks so i get a watermelon some variety packs and some i like the peach mango the most and i just their customer service all i had to do was email the lady and she's just johnny on the spot she takes care of it she emails me back and um if they mess something up they just make it right and uh so i that's one of the things that you know not only is it a great product like you say all the time the people are great people yeah no i appreciate you sharing that man i love i love hearing that because that's been the same way We've worked with Hoist now for a long time, and it's been the same experience for us working with them. It's super easy because they're good people and they care. Um, and that was the thing that amazed me too when I did the Cocodona. You know, drinking Hoist as my exclusive hydration supplement for four days straight, 
I was like, you know, surely at some point I'm not going to be able, my, my palate is going to get tired of this. But it didn't. It's, it's the only thing that I've, hydration supplement that I've used in my water that I, I don't get tired of drinking. And I've tried all of them, man. I've tried all of them. And it's just something about the balance between this the sweet but also a little bit of saltiness. Yep. Uh, it just it never gets old for some some weird reason. So they nailed it on that. So I'm glad you guys got to put it to the test and it worked out for you the way it's worked out for me in the past. If you guys run, sweat, work hard out in the heat, you generate, you know, sweat and you're you're depleting yourself. Get you some dang hoist. It's going to help you go further, and uh, it does everything that it says it will do, which is hydrate you better than water. It definitely does that. Not to mention, it's made in America, which is a big deal to me. It's hard to manufacture a product in America. I mean, it takes extra effort to do that, and they've made the extra effort to do it. So check them out at Drink Hoist. Dot com guys it would mean a lot to us if you guys support our partners here at 307 project let's get into the race man um on the on the start line how how did that feel i mean this is your first time being on a start line of a 100 mile race paul it's your second time but you had had a dnf <clears throat> the last time you attempted this. Yep. So how were you feeling on the start line? Because I, I like to talk about this because nobody ever talks about it. Honestly, uh, I learned a lot from the first one uh, because it was it was the jewel. And I had a lot more confidence going into this one because I did one thing. I bulletproofed myself with taking quitting off the table. It was done. There's no way I wasn't finishing this race. How did you do that? I mean, how did how, what, what's that process look like for you? Because for me, I feel that, man. Yeah. For me, uh, it was absolutely setting some bars in my mind in my training that I had to hit. Like I, I had a, I said I had to get a seventy over seventy mile weekend. I had to get consistent back to back long runs, and I knew once I got over the hump with those, then I'm ready. And then it came down to. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to finish this race. DNF is not acceptable. And the thing is, is I think something's important here. Um, there's nothing special about doing a 100-mile race unless it's special to you. I, I think Blake and I talked about this when I didn't finish the other one. You can't do a 100-mile race for somebody else. You have to do it for you. And that's where I got to. We had conversations ahead of time. We did every two weeks we did a conference call with John Hogue out in Arizona, Caleb, me, and John Hogue, and we talked about where we were in our training, what we were going to do. Right before the race, when we did that last conference call, we had a difficult – we had some straight-up conversations about, number one, what do you need when you get to a low point? Because every one of us is going to experience that. Hopefully we experience it at different times. Yeah. Number two, we had a conversation that I, I basically said, guys, y'all did this for me. I'm assuming I'm right in the understanding that y'all are going to do it my way. 
regardless if you are or not, I'm doing it my way. So if, if you need to go faster, you can leave me and go faster. I'm fine with that. I'm going to do it my pace. If you need to go slower and I'm not going to meet the 24-hour deadline, or my, my goal that I set, if I get to a place where it looks like you're going to hold me back from that, I'm sorry. I love you, but I'm, I'm going for this. Mm-hmm. This is my thing. And so I think that mindset ahead of time and then the days, uh, the days leading up to it, I went on a run in the morning and I just thought about, you know, things that I've learned from listening to people like you and Blake and other folks. You know, I was like watching Blake do that 100 and had his knee not been hurt, there's no telling what his time would have been. Like a lot of – he's not saying this. I haven't heard him talk about this on a podcast like, oh, wow, what I – I watched him train. I went on some training runs with oh, him that I couldn't – hard, man. Like, yeah, I, I just – I really – I know. But he didn't quit. Yeah. And so that was that was something. Um, quite frankly, it was all the bulletproof in my mind, I feel like, ahead of time with just there's – no, there's just no highway option. Yeah. I'm going to finish this thing. There's – and it was part of it was other people. There's so many other people investing in this with me. Caleb, John, my family. Um, at the time, of course, I didn't know Blake and them were coming down there, but that was part of it. But it couldn't be that. It had to be this is my deal. And even like Malachi and thinking about his life and what it meant, that was a part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But ultimately, it was my word and my integrity on the line. And I can't do this again. I can't get on a starting line and get into the hard stuff and quit you know if something's broken yes but if something's hurting (laughs) it just wasn't gonna happen yeah yeah man i'm so glad you brought that up uh this uh, these notes right here that are on this paper this is actually my notes from a speech that i gave uh two days ago so this is a speech that i give called change the way you think and at the very Top, number one, right there, on changing the way you think, this speech says, take quitting off the table. Yep. Wow. Huh. How about that? (laughs) Number one, it is literally the foundational element. It lays the foundation of proper thinking. As long as you still have some inkling of an idea that if things get harder than you wanted them to be, that you can bow out. As long as you still operate with that little bit of, of idea in your mind, you will not think properly about anything. So this is the foundational element of setting yourself up to think right. And why is it important to think right? Because... A very large percentage of the problems that we have in our lives that we just can't seem to overcome, the challenges that we're faced with that we just can't find a way around, over, through, a lot of those things exist. A high, high percentage of them exist because we don't think right. That's why I've made this my primary speech because I've thought about what, People are faced with all these challenges, and whether it's business, spiritual, marriage, uh, whatever aspect of of your life, these people are faced with all these challenges, and and they get all these bullcrap answers. They get all these 
you know, people trying to give them these tactics and procedures and and things that they can do on a day-to-day basis that's going to help them overcome the... No, it, 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 it almost always revolves around improper thinking. Mm-hmm. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is. Come on. And, and that's, you know, that's the thing that I think we taught my teachers even when they knew we were doing this and... Uh, <laughs> They sent me some of the texts that I got were, don't forget, because I share this with my staff sometimes about my family. One of the things we say in our home is, Wilders don't whine. And that was, I asked Natalie what one of her takeaways from this race was, and she said, y'all never came in complaining and whining. You told us what you needed. You told us if something was hurting, we we said, hey, we need if we needed to address it. Now, we didn't talk about things hurting that didn't need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, so that would be the second thing, obviously, and it, where do we, you know, power of the spoken word. Yeah. What's in your heart? That's the thing. This run was not just something I was doing. It was something in my heart. And so I was able to take quitting off the table. And uh, and I think, you know, the running it with other people, and I think it's kind of unique. We ran with three people, you know, and the Bible talks about a three-chord strand is not easily broken. Boy, I think, I think my sister mentioned that to me when I was talking to her after the race. I have an older sister, fourteen months older than me, and you know she runs like half marathons and stuff. And she just does some CrossFit and takes care of herself. And we were, she was just really, you know, engaged. All my family was really engaged in this thing, and that's what, something she mentioned. I thought, you know what, that's true. You know, it. We had all three of us, and uh, it was a beautiful thing. Well, I think with the you know taking quitting off the table, a lot of people. Here, you know, even that follow 307, they hear Chad say those things and they say, all right, on this race or on this event, I'm taking quitting off the table. But it's like, no, man, that that's the, that's the way you live. Like, your life is your life, and, and you don't differentiate business, spirit. Marriage. You don't differentiate any children. stuff. Yeah, the principle applies to, to every every aspect. But it, it But it's who you are, and then who you are <coughs> is, is who you are in the things that you do. And... I watched this documentary on um, Conor McGregor, and people can say what they want about him, but the dude's legit. Like he's he's the he's the real deal, you know. And he was saying in that documentary he'd lost a fight, and he was like, "Look, I was training bad." He said, "I said I was going to wake up at this time and train, and I didn't. I said I wasn't going to eat this thing. I ate that thing. I said go to sleep at this time. I went to sleep later." And he was like, "All of those things over the over the course of that training cycle." They were just little minor losses, minor quitting, all this. And he said, I, I just, I quit. And, and it's like, well, really, that's, that's who you are. You know, taking quitting off the table is something you do long in advance of the yep. race you do. So Those long-run commitments yeah. that you do on Saturday. And, you know, I quit playing guitar on Sunday morning so I could run an early long run before church on Sunday morning. And, like, the commitment that I made to be ready for this race was part of taking quitting off yeah. the table. Yeah, exactly. I get that. Yep. I get that. Um, What about you, Gabwall? You're, you're entering into this, you know – new level of challenge that you've never experienced before. You know, you don't you don't know what it's gonna feel like at mile what seventy, eighty, 
you have no idea what to anticipate. You don't know what it's going to feel like at mile 30. Yeah. We were all getting PRs. Like, he got a PR at mile 31. I got a PR at mile 51. The only way we could get John a PR is to finish in under 24.54, Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so how did that feel, I mean, showing up and knowing what was ahead of you? So, <clears throat> I mean, the longest race I had done before this was a 5K obviously, because I did that in cross-country in high school. But uh, I think leading up to it, so the biggest thing for me was, so by the time we had committed to it, I started working at Toyo, and they work a two-two-three schedule. So you work two days, you'd be off two days, work three days, you know, it just continues, it goes back and forth. So basically one week you work Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, Thursday, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then the next week you only work Wednesday, Thursday. And so with that schedule, I was like, okay, all these training plans everybody's coming up with or any suggestions anybody has are completely irrelevant. And so I was like, I'm going to have to make this crap up on my own and do what I know to do and just stay, like you always talk about, stay patient with the process that I know I don't know exactly what the process is going to look like. I just know that if I push too fast, I'll get shin splints because I've had two stress fractures from high school. Um, I knew that if I trained too many miles that I'd get shin splints and possibly, you know, I didn't want to do anything that would take me out of the race, but I knew I couldn't, you know, just slack around, obviously. And so I just basically made up my own training plan. So, like, when I would work the long week, and I had Wednesday, Thursday off, I just had to run both of those days. And so, but also I was standing up on my feet for 12 hours during that week that I was working. And so, you know, you can't discount that time of time on your feet yeah, on sure. the concrete because it's, you know, it's rough on the joints. For sure. But uh, anyways, I would train Wednesday, Thursday, and I had to take, you know, not running off the table. Now there were some times that obviously I, I you know, put it back on the table of not running. But anyways, I just, based on the baby, it wasn't because of any reason yeah. that I wanted to do it, but I had just had a baby. So um, when I was training for it, like I said, I was just kind of in a gray area of like, how am I, how am I going to train to run a hundred miles? And it was, okay. It got to a point where I was just, okay, how many miles can I put on my legs and how many, how much time on my feet can I get in a week? and still feel okay. And so for me, it was very untraditional, I guess. But then again, ultra running is very untraditional. And the way people train, everybody trains different. Yeah. And so that's another thing I liked about it was I could just make it up. And then as we finish, turns out, you know, I can train effectively just making the crap up in my mind. And so that was a big, that was the biggest win for me, to be honest, was my training. I never got injured. I never had shin splints, knee pain. The only time I ever had knee pain was when I uh, would change shoes. Like if I uh, – like so I started out running one kind of shoes, and then I tried another pair, and I liked them pretty good, but the bottoms wore out. So then I went to the Speedlands, and those bottoms never wore out, and they felt fantastic. So I stuck with those. But uh, other than that, that's the only pain I ever had during my training. So the biggest win for me was showing up healthy. And because – like I said, I made it up as I went. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not completely new to running. I know what it takes to run and enjoy running in the fact that you can bring whatever pain upon yourself that you want to, just like duck hunting. But anyways, yeah. it's like when I showed up on that start line, to be honest with you, 
I was probably the complete opposite of what dad was talking about because he was talking about all these people and it was his thing, you know, like he said, me and John were doing it with dad for dad and we we're doing it at his pace. And we had said that on the video chat before, like we were planning on, even if I felt better, I wasn't going to run faster. I was just going to stay with him because I told him, I said, kind of like Blake talked about with his race. If you're out there longer, you just gain more. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that you, if you can run it faster, you know, I'd run it faster, but in this situation, I wasn't going to because I was doing it with dad and I knew that I could still get more out of it if I just stayed with dad, period. And so going to it, for me, it was just like, I'm just going and running with dad and John. Like, it was very underwhelming. Huh. I did not have anything built up in my mind. I wasn't stressed. It was just kind of like, okay, I'm going to go run. And I didn't think about the distance. I knew it was 100 miles. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not an idiot, but I was like, I mean, very underwhelmed, I guess, compared to how I've been to every other thing I've ever done. But I told this to John uh, before Dad joined in on the last call that we did the week before. Um, I've never done something where the training was easier than the event, and that's unique to ultra running. Yes. Because anytime you do, like, I've played baseball, basketball, soccer, you know, ran cross-country track, done a lot of sports. The practice is always harder because you're supposed to be preparing for the event. Yeah. In ultra running, you cannot, without hurting yourself, make the practice harder than the actual event. You have to be an idiot. Yeah, exactly. You'd have to just run. That's a good point, man. You just have to run the 100-mile race, you know, I guess for nothing if you did the training race. If you did said, I'm going to run 100 miles for to train for 100 miles, I guess you're just running a pointless race. But also your legs probably wouldn't be able to take running – you wouldn't be able to peak at the same time for sure. But I was super excited. I told John about the fact that I had the opportunity to push myself harder in an event than I ever did in training, and I'd like to see how that turns out. And so that's when going on to the start line, I was excited about that part, but everything else I was just super underwhelmed because I was like, I'm just going out for a run, just another day. So Were you confident that you were going to finish or was there? Yes, sir. Okay. I've never even thought about that as an aspect of of a unique aspect of ultra running. That point that you just made about how you can't replicate the difficulty of the race in training because like you said, you'll break yourself. Yeah, you could you could replicate it, but the the actual race that you're running when you're talking about running 100 miles or more, it's unhealthy. It's not healthy for you. It does nothing but tear you down in a big way. So you're not going to do that in training. So, yeah, you get to face up to something on race day, especially when it's your first 100-miler that you've never felt or experienced before, and there's no way to replicate it other than actually doing the real thing on the day that it actually counts. Mm-hmm. So that is a pretty unique aspect. Um so you guys start this race <clears throat> at what point did it get hard for you Paul at what at what point was it like and and, and you know what I mean by hard yeah. I mean like okay 
I, I, this ain't this ain't really fun no more. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, you know, it started off the biggest fear or anxiety I had early on was whether or not we're gonna have enough porter johns to take care of Caleb because he pees all the time, and so and he I do too. we articulated all of that, you know, and uh, that was the only thing I was concerned about with this race. I told Dad, I said, you know, I ain't well, I can maintain the pace we got to maintain. I can eat all day long, but I don't know if I'm gonna be able to hold my urine in long enough to make it all the way. Yeah, we I'll teach you family. a little trick one day, Caleb. Uh, we you can walk and pee at the same time out of the bottom of your shorts. Well, when you're walking down the sidewalk yeah. on A one A in Daytona, it, you might not be having that. And they specifically oh, well, you tell you in the manual that you cannot do that in public. Oh well, dang. Yeah, okay. so you get these qualified. It's in the rule book. Okay. Yeah, so out. we were like, we gotta. So what John was like the. The master at finding Porta Johns from construction sites. So we were so blessed with that. But anyway, my the first hard part, um, <clears throat> I think because it was so easy early, we pushed the pace a little bit. And I don't think we pushed the pace to an unhealthy level. John was John did a tremendous job pacing us. We had the plan of going seven and three, seven-minute run, three-minute walk. During the three-minute walk, we're going to keep up with nutrition and make sure we're drinking. And, uh, and I think the problem was – on those three-minute walks, I I took too much nutrition early. Um, we were running probably 10.30 to 10.10 pace. 10.30 pace, yeah. So we were consistently at 10.30 pace, and it felt actually really good. There was nothing like I wasn't straining myself to do that. All of my training, I ran about that pace anyway. Um, and so we were pretty good going into about mile, I would say, like the first aid station, Blake and them came down. I didn't know where they were coming. John knew they were coming. Well, that's the second aid station. Well, it, we didn't stop at the first aid station. Yeah, we did, 16. But that's what came I mean. at 26. When, well, I thought we saw y'all at 16. No. Okay. So, uh, yeah, the first aid station was a breeze. Everything went quick. And then we got to the aid station where Blake and them were. That's where I changed shoes and that van got mm -hmm. stuck. And so I had to go get my shoes, and there's a van right behind our truck trying to get out and i'm like having to get around them but i i, I changed shoes because my achille i have a where my i had plantar fasciitis in my heel and it gets aggravated and the shoes i was wearing was really good on the forefoot but they weren't good on my heel so i went with a different shoe and it was immediately a win there so that was the only early stuff and that wasn't there was no worry that was you know it didn't matter if that hurt the whole way i was gonna be fine but the real problem started about mile 33 we started going over this bridge. It's early. We started going over the bridge, and like I said, um, I had try, I ate too much early, um, you know. And I know we joke about the meat sticks, and the coke <laughs> didn't happen until after I got sick. By the way, the coke was to settle my stomach. Uh, I from assume sick. somebody has already listened. I've to already last listened to that podcast. podcast. Okay, of course, Paul's gonna puke. But um, <laughs> the reality, the reality was. Um, I, I was afraid that if I introduced something totally strange later, like I did practice eating, um, eating something different. The, the meat stick was the only salty variation I could think of that I, cause I knew I was going to get sick of all that sweet stuff, the sweet humid gels and all. So, uh, but the problem was, I think, you know, because, like I said before, those three minutes, they come so often you have a tendency to eat too much or you have a tendency to neglect it and not eat. Like on training runs, Caleb would have to remind me to eat. Mm. Um, and so I just I feel like it started getting hot we were running a pretty good pace so I come into that aid station and it's a great spot I love how that aid station was set up 
especially after I puked because there was plenty of grass to absorb it. But I get in the aid station, and we had talked about not sitting down until we absolutely had to. And I was expecting, like, to be going seven and three for at least 50 miles. We get right before that bridge, so it was probably a couple of miles out from the aid station. I had to tell John I couldn't run. I needed to ease off a little bit. So we went up walking up the bridge, which is the only elevation in Florida is the bridges, right? And and that's something I was kind of proud of, like, hey, we can run these easy because where we live, you know. But we had to kind of back off on that. And I felt kind of – that was something that was really unique about this race. For a moment, I felt embarrassed and, like, you know, it was a challenge of my manhood. These guys are fine and I'm not. But I think there was a deliberate thing in me that, you know, this you're not, you're not racing – 50 miles you're not racing 30 miles you're racing 100 you got to get right got to the aid station sat down in the chair and, and got nauseous and so then i went to i i just eliminated everything that was in my stomach <laughs> almost got my daughter did that hit you when you sat down sat, sat, yeah once i sat down that's where it hit i wonder me. why I don't. I think and that's why i told caleb later hindsight's 2020 every time we sat down that's what the the second time I got sick was the same thing as when I sat down, but um, I would get nauseated. But I think it was like I say, I had too many calories. Once I got that done, and we started running the next leg, we had to back off and change our plan a little bit. To was it six and four we went to, mm -hmm. and then we dropped the pace to eleven. Eleven. We ran the pace we were supposed to. I told Blake. Blake <coughs> said, I won't, "Well, actually, no. We went to eleven thirty because yeah. what happened was once we came out of twenty six. We slowed down to 11 because it started getting hot. Like when we went from 26 to 35, I think. Yeah, or, it was hot. Yeah, it, was, it got up to 80 degrees. And, mm. you know, it's freaking cold down here. Yeah, so we're like, no okay. cloud covers. No, you're running exposed. on the road the whole time. Yeah. And so I was like, dude, it is hot. Like this is not what I was expecting. I had jackets, packed, like gloves, yeah, um, a toboggan. Like I had a heater for Amy and them at the aid stations. Yeah, that was not at all not what needed. expected. Not needed. But I mean, you know, just part of it. So when you when you started blowing chunks, did that rattle you at all? I got on my hands and knees, and Blake got a good picture of that, and we <laughs> joked about that. But uh, in my mind, my mind started going crazy, and quitting started coming. Not then, but you got to at least get sixty or seventy. Oh, and I got so mad at myself. Mm. And I fixed it. I just fixed it right away. And uh, I, what, what did you do? What do you mean by that? I just remembered why why I was there and what I said I was going to do. I got all these people here supporting me. This is who I'm supposed to be. Like Blake said before, you're not when you say you're going to take quitting mm. off the table. You don't take quitting off the table because you do something. It's who you are. And I'm like, this is this can't be who I am. I can allow it to be. I can be a sissy if I want to, but that's not that's not what these kids came here to support me. Man, my wife and my kids and and Blake and them. Every time I saw them, I've Amy's crewed me at every race I've ever. And man, just she and Natalie have crewed me at a lot of them, and then she's crewed me at all of them. And she's like, she's the best. She's never gonna fail me. I know that. And so having her there. It's just so like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna not give my very best for those people, and I, I was embarrassed that I threw up, but I wasn't gonna let that be the story. 
And so it took me a minute. We we went, we left there, and we had to keep running through all these people. And it was kind of a blessing in the skies because we really couldn't get back on to our regular process until we got to a bridge. And then that bridge, we got over it, and we could start running again. And once we started running again, I felt good. Um, I got through that. So that 35 miles, <coughs> got everything settled. I was really worried about whether or not I could get my stomach calories enough yeah that. but i'd overdone it so much i think my body had pl- absorbed plenty i was probably fine and that's the thing you, you you can panic emotionally like you said before it's the same thing as a man think if you think right i just had to settle my thinking down not think too far ahead and just hey all you gotta do is make it the next aid station you know amy's got grapes she's got good healthy food that's that'll be my adjustment we'll just make sure that if I need something solid there, if I need to sit down and eat more at an aid station, then I'll do that. We had, a, we had because we had run 1030 pace consistently for a long time, we were well ahead of the game. I was still in great shape. Ultimately, my goal was to run it in under 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, was, that was the first challenge for me. And honestly, there was never a point after that at which there was any doubt. Um, there was a little bit of doubt as to whether or not we're going to get it done fast enough, but never any doubt about finishing after that. You puked again, though, didn't you? 92. 92? <laughs> it felt great. What the crap, Paul? I was on the way back from the toilet, wasn't That's it? right. <laughs> it's coming mid, out of everywhere. He stopped mid lot. <laughs> Good. But I was nice. like, that's eight miles. Like, it's so weird. Like, when you think about this, when we got to 73 miles, you would think you, you can think one of two ways. I was thinking, dang, all we got left is a marathon. Most people would be thinking, oh dear God, I've still got a marathon. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was honestly like, when we got to 92, I'm like, I could do this blindfolded. I could crawl eight miles. Yeah. Like there, there was no doubt, you know. And I, like I went, I went to the bathroom and came right to the middle of the parking lot and got on my hands and knees and just, bleh, and it was chocolate. It was the only caffeine gel i had all night and you know it was by this time it's probably like three o'clock in the morning or something and uh and and grapes like i can see like the texture of you know so it's that fibrous stuff just coming out Mm -hmm. and i had already told them it was about three or four aid stations before that i had started taking hoist in my water like everything was hoist and then that the one little bpn supplement of carbohydrates so i knew i had enough nutrients that even if I got dizzy or – but I never got dizzy. I never got to that place where your calories get low enough that you start getting a little bit lightheaded and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, at this race, you can't pee on the sidewalk, but you can Correct. puke on the sidewalk. That's right. <laughs> I don't understand that. It's both bo- – both are bodily fluids, so yeah. they didn't – But you're not much. exposing anything you shouldn't expose, you know. But well, your plan is – yeah. You can literally is. just – Pee out of the bottom of your shorts. Yeah. You don't have to expose yourself. You could probably just get away shield with that. yourself and just let it, just have the streams. The only thing they yeah, would see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So smells really. Well, I mean, me. to be honest with you, though, there was a port like somebody was doing construction at least every mile. <laughs> Praise God for hurricanes. Every <laughs> mile were... there was construction. Dang. And man. so, like, if you had to pee, you just had to wait a few minutes. Like it was like one yeah. or two minutes. We so never got to, to. I never got to a place where I had to hold it very long. John did. That was only at the end though. But that was because we had gotten to the city of Daytona, and there's a little yeah. less construction where all the downtown a lot of stuff light. is. Yeah. 
At night, it wasn't a big deal. No, it, no, it, you do whatever you bushes. want to. At night. Yeah, you could yeah. go in the bushes at night. Yeah, yeah. Join turn all your the headlamp th- off and the flashing lights. Yeah, join all the drunk people at two a.m. peeing on the sides. <laughs> yeah, that ticked me off. We ran by this uh, bar and there was this lady. They had come by us on a motorcycle, and Caleb, we just had the most awesome moment. And this motorcycle comes by, and this drunk lady goes, "Run! Isn't this a running race or something like that?" And I was like. Mind your own business. I don't know if she heard me or if I said it loud enough for her to hear me, but I was so mad. <laughs> well, what about you, Caleb? I mean, you're just – because they, these long runs, man, you know, so much of it is just process. It's just process miles is what I call it. Mm-hmm. It takes so long for it to get difficult. Oh, that's one of the things I love about it. You oh, have yeah. to endure this long process to – and the whole time you're thinking, uh, well, this is easy. I'm moving slow. Like, when is this going to get hard? When is it going to get hard? I mean, we see it at the ROP course all the time. Uh, people don't understand that. They don't understand the concept of waiting and and, and that it's, gonna, it's coming. Don't worry. So when was that moment for you? I'm interested because I heard there was a time that you kind of you kind of did you fall back or, or something like that? So what was that moment for you where where you were experiencing what you what you wanted to experience in terms of difficulty? So there was one point at the beginning of the run, and this wasn't like you know a big deal. It was just a little bit of pain, but uh, for some reason the top of my ankle where it connects to your foot, where your shin connects to your foot, that tendon was just war slap out. And so I made jokes with Chili and Blake. I was like, you know. You know, Dad and John were making fun of me, and everybody was making fun of me about how nice it is to be young. But I got warmed up by mile 35. So I felt great at mile 35, which was further than I've ever run before because the longest I had been in my training was 30 miles. But uh, that was when I finally loosened up was around, like, mile 32 or so. And so uh, at 35, that tendon went numb. Mm. And so I could feel my foot, like, kind of flopping. But, I mean, that was no you big deal. You could hear him. Like, he would yeah. start I'm like, foot just slapping the ground. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it felt great because it was numb, so I didn't care. Mm-hmm. And um, But it didn't get hard until, let's see, that was when Blake ran with us. It was from 60 to 73, right? Yeah. Yep. And so at about 62 was when John's wife met us, July. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so anyways, right before that, my knee, the whole front of it was just, <laughs> And it, I mean, it was just crazy how hard the pain was. And I was trying to run, and I would just get running, and then I'd stop. I'd get running, and then I'd stop. I'd get running, and then I'd stop. And so finally, in that moment, we just had to walk for a little bit. And I just walked it out, and then would start running slow, 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 and then speed it up more and more and more and more. So I'd start running, and when I started running again, I was running like 15-minute pace. So like real slow. But then it just picked up and picked up and picked up. And then John's wife met us uh, – with a knee brace and i absolutely hate the idea of wearing a knee brace oh you didn't want to put that knee i didn't want to put that sucker on i was like john was like yeah you can use this and i said no i'm good and then (laughs) about those knee braces are kind of silly well every bit every bit of like two minutes later i was like god i'm just being you know prideful and being an idiot yeah like i know that i need it so i asked him you know i was like hey what is it like and he said it's just a compression sleeve basically with a piece of plastic on the front that holds your meniscus in place. And so 
anyways, I was like, okay, you know, I can wear a compression sleeve on my knee. That's probably, you know, usually compression for some reason takes, I don't know all the science behind it, but takes away some of the pain, whether it be placebo effect or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. I don't care. It worked. And so, anyways, I felt a lot better after I put that on and I was good to go again. Then at mile, when we left the mile 73 aid station, um, it got absolutely unbearable on the back of my calf. So it's the tendon that runs from your hamstring, then to your knee, and then off to your the back of your knee to your calf. Yep. It was hurting like crazy. And, I mean, I, I could not run. I would try, and it would just lock up every time. And so it just would not let up. It was flexed the entire time. And so I couldn't bend it, and so I couldn't run. But I could walk because you can walk straight legged. Did it get swollen and oh, like was, red and hot or? So I didn't pay attention to it at the yeah. time, but I'm sure it did. At the end of the race, it dang sure was. I've I had that flare up on me before too, man. It's super painful. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, I don't, I'm going to keep trying and keep pushing and trying to push through. And so I would run for a couple of seconds and then stop, run for a couple of seconds, stop. Like it was, it was not long at all. It was more than a couple of seconds. It was probably like 30 seconds I'd run and then have to ease up and walk again. But eventually got to the point where John said, we're going to have to have a hard conversation about whether you want to finish all together or whether you want to finish in under 24 hours. And I said, and I had already come to that decision and thought in my mind as well. I was about He'd to already told us to leave him. Yeah. And so I said, y'all leave me. Like, I'm, I'm not worried about it. Y'all leave me. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, they were like, okay, well, what's your plan? And I said, I'll just get Krista to come get me. And part of me was thinking that, but a lot more of me was thinking, I just need to get them out of here so I can do what I need to do. And then we'll see, we'll reevaluate here in a few minutes. And so, because I was not going to hurt my knee so bad that I couldn't walk within, you know, a certain amount of time because I got to be back at work. And doing electrical business or electrical work is not easy on the knees. Yeah. I mean, you've been over doing, putting in receptacles on your knees the entire day. Like, there's several times where you're just bent over or on a ladder and you have to, um, know straighten out your knees when you're on the tall extension ladders stuff like that so i knew it'd be rough on it but i was like okay i need to just you know chill out for a second and so i walked for a good 45 seconds and i was sitting there thinking and i know it was god in my head he said um like just you know what to do which is you're sitting here trying to push and then let off push and let off push and let <coughs> off like just ease into it be patient with how you're loosening up like your muscles not going to just in the snap of the fingers just loosened yeah especially when you keep trying to push it at, at the soonest possible interval exactly yeah. and so i was like so when they left i was like okay i'm going to be able to after i you know thought through all that i was like i'm going to be able to work it at my own pace and so i started like once again running at like 15 minute pace and I'd run for, like, two minutes, and then I'd walk for, like, 30 seconds. And then same thing. I did that probably three times. And the interval they were running at the time was three and two. And so I couldn't maintain that. That's why they left. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm starting to feel a little better. So I eased, eased, eased up, and I was um, – I think I walked for a little bit longer, like a minute. Then I started running for five minutes. So I'd run for five and walk for one. 
because I put it in my head. I was like, I got to catch them before the next aid station because otherwise Blake and all them are going to leave me. And they wouldn't have done that. You know, that was just me thinking during a race and not all the way there. But I'm glad that I wasn't able to do that. I'm glad that I thought those thoughts because it pushed me to do what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And so I caught dad and them before they even got to the next stage station <laughs> with all that crap. And I so, want to say it was set like seven miles that he did whatever he had to do to work through that and then caught us. And when he caught us, that was the best. That was the highest moment of the race. Yeah, it was it was really hard. Uh, the whole the being patient and deliberate part really set in during that because what happened was, I, like I said, I was running five and walking one, which is way harder than any of the interval we did the entire yeah. time. And so when uh, Dad and them got within earshot, and then my walk would hit. And so I'd get 20 or 30 yards from them, and then it'd be time to walk, and I'd be like, oh, my God. So then I did it again and again. It happened three times where I was 20 yards from them, and I couldn't catch up because of I was running uh, – like 13-minute pace, and they were running like 12.30. And we weren't looking for him. Mm -mm. Not Based on the conversation we had when he dropped, I was thinking he's going to walk or run the rest of it easy enough that he's going to finish in, you know, 27 hours, or he's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, so we weren't expecting – we weren't looking back. Yeah, it was – Yeah, I get that. It was hard, it was hard to not – deviate from what you had decided to do that was ultimately working because you were getting close, right? Mm -hmm. So it was hard not to just kind of push through and deviate from what you had been doing in order to to simply catch up with them and get back on their pace. Oh yeah, and it was that that was I was glad that all happened because <clears throat> the rest of the race I didn't have to be very there mentally. I didn't have to be very present mentally because John was there pacing us. Yeah. And I was just doing my thing, just running. I was, all I had to do was run for whatever interval we were doing and walk for whatever interval that was. It was easy. And so, and overall, other than that little part, it was easy because all you had to do was run. I mean, it was, you know, like Chili talks about, it's very simple. You either do it or you don't. And so it was very simple for me. All I had to do was keep running, and I had all I had to do was finish in under 24 hours. Now, that's not necessarily easy in the scheme of things, but it was easy to think about mentally and easy to grasp. Yep, and so yep. it was easy to execute because I could grasp it. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally get that struggle you were feeling. You talked about that tension of, you know, getting close, falling behind, getting close, but real, I really commend you for sticking to what you were doing instead of pushing through. That was something I really struggled with during uh, the Cocodona race that I did. You know, we would start, I remember many times starting up a big climb or something, and there would be there'd be a couple other runners in sight, you know, and, and I would immediately want to hammer that climb just to pass them. And Chili would tell me over and over again, he's like, no, nah, man, just keep doing what you're doing. You'll pass them. Just keep doing what you're doing. That's hard to do, though, mm -hmm. especially when you get close. You know, they're they're within 100 yards, or you just want to let's just speed up a little bit and just go ahead and get around them. Mm -hmm. But it's like, no, you've caught up to them because what you're doing is working. Oh, yeah. 
but you just got to give it a little more time to pass them in a more sustainable way, you know? Uh, so every, so every, every time I run a long race like this, I don't know if this is the same for you guys, but every time I run a long race, it's, there's, there's like one lesson that comes out of it that kind of, you know, a lot of times there's a lot of different lessons, but for me, almost every time there's one overarching lesson. And I kind of shared that on the last week's podcast for me about the idea this past race that I ran, the same weekend you guys were running, the, the major lesson for me was what you're doing right now is is writing your story. What you're doing right now is is affecting your future and the outcome that you set out to achieve so that it's interesting it's interesting that lessons never came out for me in any other race and i've ran i don't know how many hundred milers now but every time i learned something new so was there kind of for you paul was there something that you that you took from this has that came to the surface yet absolutely i want to go back because the Difficulty Caleb experienced was difficult on all of us. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That was the low point for all of us. John's only struggles were a little bit of distress um, in his gut and then having to run slow. Like, it was harder for John to run slow. Like, he probably could have run that whole race at 1030. Like, he could have done the 7 and 3 at 1030 and 16 eat more easily than he could do what he was doing to pace and keep me healthy. Yeah, we see that on the ROP course all the time. So, John, uh, that was his great sacrifice. And, man, he just – I think Caleb and I both would say, you know, he took all the stress of pacing off of us and made us be able to just focus on what we needed to do. But, but y'all been together for a long time, and then yeah. all of a sudden you lose a team member. Yeah. And that was so hard. Like I said, we set the stage for that ahead of time. We knew what we were going to do. Caleb had already told us to leave him. And John was like, no, man, we got some – we still got some – gap here we still got because we had run her fast enough early on and this was 73 miles in we still were well ahead of the game and so um <clears throat> we tried to just let caleb kind of set the pace and it, like caleb said that one part of his leg you could tell he'd he'd run and then just have to step off into the grass i mean it was not just oh i can't run it was excruciating for him and i know that and so my takeaway I want to tell a story. Caleb and I went through, and I, you know, it, this is just my perspective. Caleb may have a. Caleb and I didn't even talk about him dropping and what that meant for us and how we felt about it until Tuesday after the race, and we still haven't processed all of it together. But Caleb had Crohn's, uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's when he turned fifteen. That summer, he got his wisdom teeth cut out, and he kept having stomach issues every eight to ten days. He'd start cyclically vomiting and not be able to get anything out. And uh, and with Crohn's, they usually say you have diarrhea and things like that. And he never had that. So they, the diagnosis kept coming back, you know, and we got into, you know, they did an endoscopy and gave us all these solutions with steroids and all this bull crap. And it got so frustrating. He went from 120-something pounds, strong muscles, playing baseball, lifting, doing what we do in my basement to walking by me looking like an Ethiopian that we need to feed. Eight, was it 90 pounds? 80, 88. 88 yeah. pounds. Good we, night. 
They finally got him into the emergency room, found out, did, did a colonoscopy and found that the end of his intestines, that it was hardened and there was a hole that big for his waste to go out. And that's why every eight or ten days, all that waste would get backed up and it had to come out the other way. Good God! And his stomach man. would be cramping. And I, So two things about that. Blake to asked me during the run or said something during the run and said, that's a tough kid. What would you say? He's, that's a tough kid. He said, that Caleb's a tough kid, ain't he? I said, dude, he's been through harder. Like, this wasn't hard. Yeah. What was hard was sitting in a hospital for nine days watching them tell him, hey, this is going to get better, but not really sure. And not knowing what's going on and what's causing this. And as a father, feeling helpless, praying, doing everything you know to do for a kid who's been like, my other kids look up to him. Like, if I wasn't around, it was his voice they listened to. That's the kind of dude this is. And to watch him suffer like that and go through that, I was angry. I was frustrated. Now, God, let me, let me make something clear. God don't cause people to get sick. The devil came to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came that we may have life and have that more abundantly. But in this world, you'll have trouble, and we had trouble. Trouble came. We spent nine days in the hospital the first time, and then the second time they gave him some Humira, tried to calm it down so that they could take out less of the intestines. We went back to the hospital for eight days. Every single day my wife drove from Rockmart to Choa to bring us stuff, to be there with him. The kids were without him. And all of that suffering, we didn't choose. He didn't have a choice. And I could tell story after story of his attitude and the victory. And uh, he didn't act like other kids did. They'd come in, bring counselors because they worried about mental health and all that bull crap. He had mental health. He, he, he just wanted them to figure something out, right? And uh, so to watch him endure that, I 100-mile race, wasn't, I wasn't worried about him finishing a 100-mile race. But at the point at which he decided to drop, my whole thing was, dude, it ain't worth it if you're going to hurt yourself where you can't work and feed your family and that kind of stuff. That's irresponsible and stupid, to be honest yeah, with yeah. you. You know, like people who act like, well, you're so tough because you didn't quit. When if you'd have quit, you wouldn't have had to quit working. I'm sorry, you're an idiot if you do stuff like that and you're irresponsible with your family because of that. So that's the conversation we had. I had to be very careful. I didn't say much because I didn't want to negatively feed the quit if it wasn't something he needed to do. Yeah. But if it was something, I wanted him to have the freedom to choose and work through. And when I talked to him on Tuesday, and he talked about the process he went through to catch back up. When So we go running. The highest point of the race for me was on. we started walking. And as soon as we started walking on one of those, those about seven miles after we dropped him, he comes running up. And John goes, there he is. And he said, not today, or something like that. And – uh. And I just, I think I punched him on the shoulder, and I said, you're a beast, man, and that's all we said. Isn't that about right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was just. Which is wild that you came back from that just by. It is. By it's just incredible. troubleshooting your pace, and <clears throat> it's really wild. He that sent doesn't me a, usually happen. He sent me a text on the way down, talk about bulletproofing the mine and taking quitting off the table. I just told him I was proud of him and, you know, all this kind of stuff as a man and as a father, not just that he's doing this with me, but as a man's father, I'm proud of him. And he sent me a text back basically saying, I'm a wilder, it's what we do. And uh, 
and we're just I'm just going to get a chance to prove it. <laughs> How prophetic was that? So the first situation, he didn't have a choice. He runs 100 miles. How many times did you puke? Zero. I had zero stomach distress, and I'm the only one with the disease. He's the one with supposedly <laughs> this Crohn's disease, and he runs 100 miles with no stomach distress. But he has this other challenge. And here's the thing. We went through this challenge as a family. All my family was there, including my 307 family. And we got to choose it. We got to choose to do something hard. So that's my number one takeaway was how much all my family loves me and my friends love me and that we can get through anything together. And we got to choose that. And the second thing was if we gave the same energy that we give to physical demanding things like a 100-miler, if we gave that same energy and that same simplicity of doing what you need to do. See, we did what we needed to do to train. We did what we needed to do to get our nutrition dialed in for the most part. We, we do what we need to do to buy hoist so that we can stay hydrated. We do all those things we need to do physically to prepare to finish the race. What's that going to look like for me to have the same level of commitment and obedience spiritually? Mm -hmm. If we talk about being, you know, I always say we are a spirit. We have a soul our mind, will, and emotions, and we live in a body. Spirit-led, soul-fed, body-dead, best life ahead. Best is becoming yourself so you can benefit others, executing around what your mission is, strategically stewarding the gifts and talents God gave you, and being trustworthy and dependable. The reason I didn't want to quit that race is because I, I want to be faithful. Faithful people finish. Faithful people take their talents that God gives them and make more with it not less. Faithful people finish what they start, and they're trustworthy. When, when you say you're going to do something, you do it. Caleb said he was going to start the race and do it with me, and he did, and he finished it with me. And so my biggest takeaway, I guess, was it really didn't turn out to be for me as hard as I thought it would be. If I'd have run a little faster, puked a little less, it probably would have been harder. But the reality is, it, it challenged me with if you're the if you're man enough to do a hundred mile race and it turns out that you could execute and be successful at that, why aren't you executing at that level in your spiritual life? How do you do your spiritual life at the same level of diligence you prepared in that race? So that's kind of my big takeaway. Yeah, and that's a big takeaway, but it's also. It's also a question. I mean, the way you the way you framed it. So, I mean, why is that? Like, why why is that that you you and me and so many people out there we can do all these things just like you just said to be able to accomplish, you know, this physical goal that we've set. But why is it we can't apply the same principles to our spiritual life, or or what? Not 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 that we can't. Why right. don't we? Yeah, I think a you big know? part of that is that in our physical fitness, we can see how it works. We can <clears throat> see if I do these things, I see how that translates, and I know at least likely where that will lead me. And you have a lot more control of it, but over it. 
versus following Jesus, you have control over your actions, but you don't know like the results it's going to yield. You don't know where it's going to lead you. You don't have yeah. the end goal in mind. And so I think that... You're not the boss. Exactly. And I think that is why a lot of people don't and won't do or put the effort into a spiritual walk as they do a, a, a physical fitness challenge. Well, you know, I think the the key that God, I feel like even this morning I told Caleb on the way over here, the scripture that, you know, John the Baptist says when he's called to prepare the way of the king, right? And then Jesus is there and his disciples are like, no, you know, what are we going to do? He said, I must decrease yeah, that he may increase. And so the spirit led, soul fed, body dead. It doesn't mean my body is dead. It means my flesh is crucified. Yeah. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm putting off the old man and putting on the new. And and it's a like you can't do that just by you can't do it on your own. You have to have the Holy Spirit helping you do that. And you have to submit. But you still have to be a doer, right? You still have to just do some things. So it's a a a, a brew of uh obedience mixed with just giftedness that God gives the grace of God the you know we're say by grace through faith and that grace is a gift mm-hmm. and so all of those things confuse us i think we we wind up confusing the issue and that's at mile 35 when i'm on my hands and knees the thoughts that were trying to come in and distract me were thoughts of this is embarrassing you're <coughs> on your hands and knees in front of your kids Blake's taking pictures of you <laughs> Um, you know, Chad's making fun of you on a podcast, you know, there's, so all of this stuff, you know, this me, it's all me centered, but when I'm goal centered, then it, it, it simplifies. Yeah. And, and when I, when I was able to simplify it, it doesn't matter how I feel right now because I've got to find a way because there's quitting's already off the table. And in life, you know, in a spiritual walk, and not just spirit, like for spiritual walk to me, it's being right now. My spiritual walk is a natural walk on this earth as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, as a friend, as a church leader, as a principal, as a everything that I do, I'm supposed to do it hardly as unto the Lord. But how much time do I waste on things? Like I got up early enough to go run and get those runs in where I could still have time to do the things I need to do for my family. Do I do the same thing about the core fundamental things that you have to do to have a relationship with God? Do I make enough time to enjoy reading his word? Do I make enough time to enjoy worshiping and praising his name and honoring him with my lips? Do I make enough time to submit to him in prayer and to pray prayers and supplications, but also just to pray the will of God. And so really that's kind of where I am now is, all right, how to, what's this going to look like for you? And just like I thought about that other, I believe the key is to have faith that if, if, if God wants you to do something, he'll show you. And if you just do it, he'll show you some more. And then you just do that and he'll show you some more. And that's, that was the beautiful thing of watching Caleb execute around all of this. I thought this race was going to be about me. They were running this race for me and all that kind of stuff. But the most beautiful thing that came out of this race was watching my 24-year-old son execute. And he told me stories about how the scriptures that Krista sent. Watching my baby 
just crew him during this race and see them uh, invest in one another and see what that poured into Timothy so that Timothy's, you know, motivated. I did a bike ride with him today, and he went and ran 12 miles at Berry, and he's an excellent runner already, and he ran part of the race with us. And just the engagement of my whole family, that is not just physical. This 100-miler was not just a physical event. It was a soulish event. I had to overcome with my mind, will, and emotions. And it was an, a spiritual event because we chose. John, Caleb, and I chose to honor God at every moment of what we were doing in this race. So that's, I think, I think sometimes we over-spiritualize things that are natural. And then sometimes we under-spiritualize <clears throat> things that are supernatural. Sometimes just working hard and doing what you're supposed to do is supernatural because too many people aren't naturally executing around that. And when you do, you're doing something that's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah I agree 100%, man. <clears throat> yeah, that that's a – I mean, to me, that's a healthy perspective shift when you can take that idea of what you – what you spent the time on doing to prepare and to execute this and then and then turning that around, flipping it around and asking yourself, well, where am I not where am I not doing or applying these same principles and this same amount of effort and this same amount of time to what is really important, my spiritual life and yeah, when I ask myself what it what what's the answer to that for me <sighs> the the longer i the longer i am w- being led by christ i also realize that christ jesus is very subtle and at, for the most part you know there there are moments that are you know you experience real highs if you want to call it but it's a long walk. Yeah. It's a lifelong walk. And the majority of it is very, very subtle. And I think that even goes back to what you just said about how a lot of things that are supernatural, we don't recognize them as that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of the reason why why I neglect things that I, I don't apply the same efforts a lot of times that I would that, that I would apply to finish a a two hundred and fifty mile race. I don't apply the same effort into walking or being a be, serving Christ well, right? Bean told me something on our race that kind of stuck with me along these same lines. He said he was talking about mine and Brooks' relationship and he said nurture your wife's faith like really spend time with her nurturing her faith and i was thinking man i don't do that and that's what so that's one of those things where i'm not applying the same effort that i would apply to accomplish this physical endeavor i'm not impl- applying the same effort to something that i should be doing as the spiritual leader of my home, why the crap ain't I doing that, man? And that's going to get hard. And when it gets hard, do you have the same taking attitude off the about table? It. Do I have the same attitude about it? Right. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, he's like, nurture your wife's faith, like spend the time doing that. And, and he's like, you know, if the Lord takes her before you, you'll be really, really glad that you, you, you spent the time doing that. So that's something I've, I've been trying to be, I have been being more diligent about just after that word from him out there. But there's many, many different, different examples that you could apply that to. And I think it's a good question for everyone to ask themselves right now. Um, I think too, we look at, you know, we look at like, why, why don't I go this hard and (coughs) say the spiritual side of things? Um, but you know, we're likening the effort we put into a, a race that even if you train for a year for like, that's, you know, pretty long time to train for a race, but that's one year versus 70, 60, 50, however long you live and yeah, serve Yeah, it's a much Christ. longer race. So you're, you're pre- I mean, I guess you can. You have to rely on Christ more, but, like, you can't go so, you, you almost can't push as hard as you push on that one-year stretch mm-hmm. in a physical challenge and put that same, in, I mean, maybe, maybe someone would disagree, but it's like you have to back off the pace a little bit because you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. you got to build these habits in slowly. Take one little bite, like Chad said, is very subtle, and that's because it's slow, sustained growth. It's something that you can take in, you take on board, and it's there permanently, and then you work on the next one. And so you feel like, I'm not really yeah. – getting as far as I want to get, but it's like, man, you got the rest of your life to work at this yeah, And thing. the Bible says we, we grow line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, right? And so that's that's a hard thing. And that, the one other thing that God dealt with me even this morning in my own personal time is just my own selfishness. Like even in things that we like to excuse as, and this, that's not selfish, that's you wanting to be, you know, when you have integrity around, like the integrity to say at 35 miles, there's quittings off the table, it doesn't matter what it looks like. The same integrity to say, no, this this particular thing in my life is not acceptable or no, how I'm thinking about this is just selfishness. It's not, I'm not doing this because. All the excuses we give ourselves to not live holy. And I'm not talking about rules and regulations. I'm not talking about what you drink and what you eat and what you... I'm talking about how you spend your time, how you talk to people, how you judge other things and other people. What kind of things worry you and give you anxiety when you're clearly told that that's sin? We make excuses and we act like, oh, you're being radical by thinking that way. Well, I'm called to be who Jesus called me to be and called to change how I think. You know, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I was beseech you therefore... Brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So there's an implication of life, but there's also an implication of death. Because a sacrifice is death. So to die to self, and you've been talking about this a lot, Chad. You know, if you don't die to yourself, and and that's why this race is such a great place of that. You know, you die to your flesh and die to yourself over and over and over again. That's easy compared to dying to your flesh on a daily basis in things that are more important and eternal and spiritual. And, you know, I don't have the answer all at once, but the answer is in there. And if we renew our mind to that, I believe with all my heart God shows us how. That's I think that's where I've already – there's a certain level of, ex, of success and effectiveness I've experienced. I have the best marriage in the world. I have four wonderful kids and now a beautiful grandchild and a daughter-in-law that loves Jesus. So God – just line upon line over the years, God's blessed me with so much because of my obedience. 
on one hand. But the moment you start getting prideful and thinking you've got it all figured out is the moment pride goes before destruction That's and the so Holy true. Spirit before a fall. So staying humble and hungry <clears throat> for obedience. It's, it's What's his name? Uh, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's so powerful. And it just talks about this long pathway of welcoming the principles of God into your life on a daily, normal basis. So I think that's the key. Uh, Gadwall, did you have any overarching kind of big lesson that came came out of this that kind of shifted your perspective or made you look at things different or that you're going to carry with you? Yeah, so for me it was uh, something, I, you know, I'm going to paraphrase, but uh, – that y'all have talked about before, but that I read that was really powerful to me when I read uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And um, it was when he was talking about um, how to be a Christian, how to have faith in God and all these, you know, all the things that go into being a Christian. And he says, do what you think it would look like. And then eventually, you know, basically to paraphrase, you'll be a Christian. He calls it good pretending, right? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why I, I didn't remember what he said, but yeah. I just called it fake it till you make it yeah. Christianity. Like it was just like you just do what you think it would look like and then eventually it'll come in and you'll be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so that kind of resonated with like all right, for instance, like I was talking about my training. Like I do know some about running, but I don't know enough about ultra running to write myself or to write a training plan other than just knowing for this one that since I only started in January, I needed to put a lot of miles on my feet to build them up. And also if you look at, you know, ultra running in general, the best runners, most of them are 35 to 40 because they've had all those years to put miles on their legs. And that's the main thing that ultra running is about is about how long can you stay on the course and in pain. And so for me, it was, you know, all right, I did that in this race. Like, I just, you know, did what I knew to do. The small little bit that I knew how to train, I trained that way. And I was success, successful in what I was trying to do, and I executed the right way. And, like, even when I was in pain and everything, it took me a couple of minutes, but I figured out what I needed to do, and I executed it and got it done. And the same thing with when my daughter was born, you know, I didn't, obviously, you never know what you're supposed to do with your first child. And ever, I mean, you just kind of do what you know to do and just take it a day at a time. And so it's, you know, it's never been that hard because as long as you just break it up, like Blake was making fun of me because we got to mile 73. <coughs> and I said, hey, Blake, when's the next aid station? And he was like, 84. I said, when's the next one? He said, do you don't worry about that one. He was about to tell me what the next one was. And I, he said, don't you worry about that one. And I was like, oh, I can add that up. I know how long it is. <laughs> and uh, so it was too late anyways. But uh, it was just knowing that I have enough in me to do the run, to be a father. And both of those things, I have not studied – near as much as I've studied the Bible. And so knowing that I can figure that out and execute what I want to and what I'm, you know, what I felt like I was called to do in that race just gave me an enormous amount of strength and power because I was like, okay, I can just come up with this crap without, you know, with it not being eternal. 
and God's going to guide me in the direction because it matters to me? What about when it does matter to the kingdom? What about when it is pushing me to um, execute on Christ's mission? Like, how much more help are you going to get on something like that? And the biggest thing, I think, at the beginning that I was just saying, and this applies to what I just said as well about spirituality, was my mindset before and my confessions that I was saying on the way down. You know, usually when I do something hard, I have, I guess, like little phrases that I try to remember in my head. Like you talk about like a mantra or whatever when you did the treadmill race for those who can't. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just thinking, okay, physically, I did, you know, three of seven. So I, you know, talked about body, soul, and spirit. And so I said, God made my legs to run 100 miles. And I believed that. And it was 100% in my mind that I could run 100 miles. Like that was not even a question. God made my heart to endure 100 miles. So cardiovascularly, I'm going to be fine, which obviously you're going to be fine because you're not running that fast if you finish it in almost, you know, barely under 24 hours. Just about anybody can handle that as long as you can stay out there long enough. Well, and you'd then, be surprised, Caleb. It took me 33 hours to run that, that one. Well, it was a lot flatter. It was a lot flatter where yeah, I was. There's no hill. Bridges <laughs> were the only hills we dealt with. Yeah, what y'all to, ran uh, was a lot harder for I sure. I just had to stop you there because, yeah, finishing in in, le- in less than 24 hours is, is a, a a pretty dang good pace yeah. to set for yourself. Yeah. but yeah. And then a uh, God gave me a will to never quit was the last thing. And so <clears> I just <throat> broke it down, and I was like, okay – how can I fail at this? And so for me, the overarching lesson was I can do it for that. I can do it for everything else. And like dad said, you know, you got to figure out how it's going to work out for you and process that. And so obviously I'm still processing that. I'll be doing that. I'll be processing that till the day I die. And I'll just keep adding it when I continue to do these races because there was just too many lessons learned. There was it was too much of a microcosm of life yeah, to not do it again. Like, it was way too awesome what I experienced. And what I'm still experiencing, that's what I was talking to Blake about when I texted him. I said, like, man, the staying present and deliberate part is still going on. Because the back of my calf is, like, when I woke up Monday, the whole thing was black. And I was like, uh-oh. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm planning on going back to work Tuesday, which I didn't. I went back Wednesday. But, and it's still, I still have a little bit of a limp, but it ain't no big deal. But the. Yeah, he's got a limp. <laughs> well, it's, it's a little limp. But anyways, uh, <laughs> it just, I can't even remember where I was going. Sorry. No, you're good. No, I no, mean, I used, basically how you're having to stay patient. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. And deliberate so, through recovery. Yes, it, it yes, yes, on. exactly. And so, like I said to Blake, it was just about. You know, like icing. I know to I just doing the things once again. Just fake it till you make it. Do the things you know to do, and you'll eventually reap the benefits of doing what you know to do. Yeah, the race isn't over. Caleb even said that to me, and I mean, it was funny. Your video came up on my phone about after a hundred. I haven't been able to watch it yet, but like, it's just stupid to not continue that same thought process through recovery, so that you're able to go like. I feel like that's what's happened to me sometimes in other races. There was this big low because I was thinking about I just accomplished this. This time, it's like I have so much to still learn from it. I'm still present in it. And I'm still I'm recovering physically, um, 
mostly, you know, just getting used to eating normal again, getting you know, easing into some lifting and some things I can do, not putting a lot of strain on my legs yet. But Caleb even mentioned that today, I think, about that deliberate, what he's saying right now. And I think that's important that, you know, recovery is just as important so that you're ready for the next thing. And if you don't do that, you don't give your body time to heal and do that, you know, it's, it's stupid to be arrogant and abuse your body and not reward it for what it just finished, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was when, on Monday when I woke up, like I said, it was my calf was black, and so I couldn't bend my knee. Well, I couldn't straighten it out or bend it, so it had to stay, like, right in between, basically, just a slight, slight bend. And so everywhere I walked, I walked backwards and because um, I had walked enough forwards, evidently, my body said. And so uh, I was like, okay, well, you know, I really don't feel like getting off this couch. But I know if I start icing, I will feel so much better because also my ankles looked like I weighed 450 pounds oh, yeah. from all that flexing of that tendon we were talking about earlier on both my legs, but especially the one that I was overcompensating on because my right calf messed up, so my left ankle was the one that was huge. Yep. And so just I was like, I got to get in there and ice. I got to be intentional about what I do. Yep. If I don't, then I'm just failing myself. Like why the heck, like Dad said, why would you quit after you already – you know, after you've completed this, like you're not back to normal yet. The race ain't over. Your work isn't over. And the awesome <clears throat> thing that I loved about this process is it's not going to be over when I fully recover because then it's just the next race. And even when I can't run anymore, when I die, it's, you know, it's I'll be doing better stuff then. But, I mean, it's just it's a constant thing where you just look – I've always looked one past everything. It's like I told Dad when I was training for this race. I have a tendency to over-train speed-wise. Like when I was running in high school, the reason I got stress fractures because I ran six-minute pace every single run or faster, and I didn't need to be doing that. And so I just had to look for next year. Like I had to say, okay, while I was training for this Daytona race, I was like, okay, well, I want to run the Jewel next year. So I guess I need to do this and be easy here. And so take it easy and just put miles on my legs to train for the jewel. And so that's how I have to look at things because otherwise I have a tendency to over push myself. Yeah, yeah. Just like you were talking about trying to pass people. Like I'm not very, I get very impatient at times. Yep. And so, but I, I definitely got a lot more patient during this race. So that was, that was fun too. Yeah, that's a unique part of how you're wired, man, is, is, you know that about yourself, and you know it's okay for you to be thinking, okay, I want to run the the jewel in 2024, so I need to plan back from that and and make sure I, what I'm doing what I'm doing right now is going to set me up for something that's over a year down the road. So that's a unique part of how you're wired. See, it would be detrimental for me to think that way, but I don't have the same. I don't have the same problem as you in terms of if, if 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 all I'm focusing on is the is the very next thing that's coming, I don't have the problem of overtraining and putting myself in a hole and then destroying everything that's after that, potential for anything that's after that. So it's good that you're aware enough of yourself and the things that that you struggle with and and the challenges that you faced uniquely and you're able to to project your 
your thought out far enough to reel yourself back in to the point you need to be at and stay healthy for whatever's coming and beyond. Yeah, I love that, man. I really do. One other thing that happened at the race, the other thing, I mean, my stomach was an issue, but probably the worst thing was my eye. Oh, yeah. I got this scar tissue that, I, you know, I've always had it. And um, I have a prescription that has a steroid drop that helps with it. But I, I put on my sunglasses, and it was so humid and hot, they were fogging up, and they were driving me nuts. So I just turned my hat back around and wore it down lower and took my sunglasses off after I dropped them on the concrete. And um, we got to a lot. There was still a lot of daylight left, and I never wear. I never go through in daylight without sunglasses. Well, I did in that race, so that was something I failed at. And uh, by the time we were running at night, there's no more of that, but I couldn't open my left eye for more than a few seconds at a time. So Dang. I'm blinking, running, looking out of one. So the worst, the last in Daytona, you know, we're running down these streets where there's just there's a drive every, you know, two or three drives every block. So I'm running. I'm having to run behind John so I can watch his steps because I can't really see the change in depth. One time I stepped up on a curb because I didn't know it was a curb there. And uh, just little things like that. That really drove, like, at the end of the race when we were taking pictures, I'm like Popeye, you know. And uh, yeah, so that. Look, he's looking rough. So, <laughs> the, the, so looking everybody rough. thought I was feeling worse than I was because I was Popeye. And, like, when I, I was, I was going to go to work because I, I work at a job where, you know, if I'd have had to, I could have sat at the desk and caught up. And so, but I couldn't drive. So uh, that, it felt like somebody was stabbing me with a knife in my eye on Sunday morning. We were getting ready to leave, and so that was the most miserable part for me. Amy got me some, like Amy got me that steroid. So by the next day around noon, I was okay. But whew, that was that was actually the most painful part of everything. Dang man, that's rough when you pile on eye pain <laughs> to the leg pain and the foot pain and the, everything else you're having to deal with. Yeah, yeah, that's that. Uh, that sounds miserable. I can't even freaking stand it when my eyes are watering. You I can't ain't stand never it. ran so far your eye hurt. No, I, no, I <laughs> haven't reached that point yet. <laughs> That's legit, man. Well, guys, I really appreciate y'all coming in and and uh, taking the time to share the story of your both of your first uh, hundred mile race, your finish in uh, in under twenty four hours. That's a huge accomplishment. And people need to hear stuff like this, and they need to understand, hopefully, why we advocate so much for endeavoring to do things like this. And it's because of these lessons that Paul and, and Caleb just shared with you guys, and those are things that they can take with them the rest of their lives, and now those are things that they're going to build upon you know, for for as long as they continue trying things that push them outside of what they're comfortable doing, people need to understand that's that's the reason. And so, you you want to run the jewel next year? Yes, sir. Hundred miles? Yes, sir. That's awesome, man. That's a great race. What about you, Paul? You got? Have you thought thought ahead to? You got anything in your mind that? Right now, you know, I I can't say how appreciative I am of Caleb because it's made running more purposeful. For yeah, me. for sure. Um, you know, I love him. I respect him. 
Like he's not my son, just my son. He's another fellow believer and a man. Yeah. And uh, so I enjoy that. And so I, I won't feel as guilty going on long runs when I'm with him. His mom will forgive that a lot more. And uh, so that's a good thing. So I'll definitely be there for him on the jewel. I'll run, you know, at least the last 30 with him, if not, you know, whatever, whatever I'm able to. So I'll stay in shape for that. I probably I want to do the jewel eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I may do like the Duncan Ridge and try to do a better uh, next year. I'm really going to focus on Timothy's senior year of cross country and helping that team do what they can do. I'll do something in the fall to just stay where I need to be. But I'm probably looking at um, doing another doing the jewel eventually, or maybe another race comes up that's a good hundred in the mountains. I really like the mountains better. I did the 100 down there because I felt like setting a 24-hour goal, that was something that would be reasonable within the wheelhouse of what I could control with the Silver Comet, the training. I could replicate the yeah. training for that. I can also do that on the Jewel because it's in our own backyard. I can, you know, so I'll probably do the Jewel eventually. Next year I won't do the Jewel for the 100 because I'm going to focus on being with Caleb and watching him uh, do, you know, meet his goals there. But uh, I, I don't know that they will ever – I don't – I also think that I'll eventually do a last man standing race just to push myself and like it be something where I absolutely control how far I go mm-hmm. by my own choice and decisions and will. So that's that's probably something down the road. But I don't have anything thought wise on the calendar. I yet. was hoping you were going to say you were going to do the Cocodona two fifty. No, no desire to do that at all. You know, I think I think Blake, I think me running that race and us doing that film, I think that was bad PR for the race. <laughs> yeah, they probably won't have because any sign-ups. N- not a single one of my friends wants to do that race. I said I'd do it, but it would just have to be when I have the freedom to take a lot of time off of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah for I sure. Don't, I'm not – I probably should be, but I'm not as intimidated by the work that has to be put in as much as the recovery that it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you got to take. Caleb a, you said got, that to me when he you got to take a week that. off after that one. For yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to share this one scripture that I mentioned earlier, though. This is really where I'm at right now. Make a careful expor- exploration of who you are and the work you've been given. Then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. So. To me, it's all about finding what that next creative best is for mm. me, and that's in Galatians chapter six, verses four through six in the message. And you know, I I just want to say thank you to to Blake and Chad for having this platform because it's fed Caleb significantly, it's fed me significantly, and you know, a lot of um, at the inception of all of this, um, the it's easy for the bones to get dry. Right, it's easy for things in our life to get weary, so that they die or that weeds grow up around them, and all of those kinds of things. So to maintain life and to maintain effectiveness, you have to always try to challenge yourself to grow. And I would not be. I told Blake when he came down there, I said, "Well, it's your fault. I'm in this stuff anyway. It's a good thing you came down here." So I appreciate you guys. I really do. Thank you for your time. I thank you for giving us an opportunity to process this together. It meant a lot to us, even just coming over here thinking about being able to be a part of what you guys do. And I uh, said, so thank you. Yeah, yeah, I was I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I when I texted Blake, because Dad told me to text him 
about uh, possibly doing the podcast. I said, I don't even care if, like, y'all have time for the podcast. I just want to have a conversation with you two because y'all have done 100 milers and you've interviewed enough people. Blake's been there for enough interviews that y'all can ask questions that I haven't asked myself. And I know that'll just really invest in me even more than what y'all have already invested. And so it just grew me even more having this conversation. So I wanted to thank both of y'all for taking time out of your Saturdays to have a conversation with us. Yeah, man. Well, we're, we're honored. It's always, I, I've, I've been looking forward to hearing the story and, <laughs> and you know, that is one of the greatest things about a podcast is you sit down and you have conversations and you, you, you really talk through things in a very deliberate way and you set aside the time and you don't you don't put a you, you don't put a we don't even put a time limit on it. We just go as long as we want to go and and that people don't do that in in normal life. I mean, how many times you sit down with your buddies and have a 2 hour, 2 plus hour long conversation about something that's important? Mm-hmm. I mean, you people don't you don't make the time to do that. We do it on runs. Yeah, yeah, you do. You get to do it on runs. Yeah, that that is a good point. But your your average person is like, and you miss so much value because you don't you don't have a good after actions report. You don't make the time to sit down and, and talk through it. And that's been one of the most valuable things for me personally about the podcast. And yeah, it's come a long way since um, we were in your basement, yeah. wasn't it, Paul? <laughs> that was fun, wasn't it? With yeah, a broken mic. Yeah. yeah, Paul was one of our first people that we wanted to interview on the Three of Seven podcast long time ago. Blake and I had bought us a like a seventy dollar microphone that uh, you just set in the center of the table, and everybody sat around it, and you kind of leaned forward when you had something to say, you know, because there was only one microphone. And we drove over to Paul's house. He set aside time. We set aside time. We didn't have anywhere to do a podcast. So Paul was like, oh, yeah, well, I have a basement. <laughs> so we get down in the basement. We plug this thing up. We get ready for the uh, to, to sit down and have the talk we wanted to have. And that microphone wouldn't work. Yep. So we just had to shut the whole operation down. That's how it started. That's, yeah. that's how it started. That was in the very... The very beginning, man. It's uh, wild. I do want to. The one person that's not here, John Hogue, out in California, he took me to the Grand Canyon. Yeah. Uh, I met him at the Proving Ground. And I took, I did the Proving Ground mission at a time in my life where I just finished, I'd written a book, I'd done some things, I'd kind of plateaued it to a point. And I kind of made myself, I, I kind of had to make myself take advantage of that opportunity and humble myself to be led. And that's where I met John. And, man, we just hit it off the first night. Um, and just <clears throat> his investment in my life, I can't even understand why somebody would fly from California, I mean from California, from Arizona, Arizona. down to, to Daytona and run a 100-mile race and pace us and lead us. It, Caleb said it, the last little part, we kind of stopped and walked a little bit gave each other fist bumps to get ready to go to the finish. And John was like, we did it, men. And Caleb made the comment to him, you took all the pressure off of us by pacing and leading us through that. And, you know, we, and, you know that's 
it's amazing to have that kind of brotherhood and friendship. And so I just want to thank John Hogue and his wife, July, for their investment. And, you know, even his three children, you know, because he's investing in other people. And I just pray that God returns back to him and to y'all, all that y'all poured into our life, because we, we've definitely been a, reaping some benefits. <laughs> it is really wild. I mean, that's one of the, to me, that's one of the most unique aspects of 3 of 7 Project. When you compare it to all the other podcasts, all the other, and 3 of 7 Pro- Project is way more than a podcast, but when you compare it to all the other brands, all the other things that are out there kind of in the same space that we're in, one of, or, or if not the most unique aspect of what has been done is the real, tangible friendships and relationships that have been formed out of this and I got to see it I got to see it last weekend at the race that I was running where you've got you know a dozen people that have come together to support each other and these people are coming from all over the country and they've all they've all been connected by way of 307 project and it's like how on earth man you couldn't you could we could have never imagined that or, or or forced that or it's just somehow it's just happened and it's really really wild to see it it really is yeah so all right well thank you guys for tuning in i hope you enjoyed the uh the show here paul where can people find you and follow you i guess they have to come to rockmark are you off of Instagram? <laughs> yeah, I just, my wife, they can find my wife, Amy Wilder, on Facebook. What the crud, Paul? Hey, you you got to talk talk your own game. Where can I'm people get your book, man? Uh, that's on Amazon. It's uh, okay. True North, Living and Leading on Purpose. And uh, Donald Paul Wilder, my full name, that's the easiest way to search that and find it. It's still on uh, Amazon. I've got a website, dpwilder.com. They can also get it off of there. But uh, predominantly the easiest, quickest way is to get it off of Amazon. And then, um, you know, obviously uh, my email, champs4cj at att.net, is one way people have connected with me through uh, 3 of 7 for the devotional I send out and those kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I just I kind of <coughs> – I'm not trying to necessarily be off the grid, but I just I, – I don't really – if I can, well, it's all good. You gave me the answers I wanted. Your <laughs> website, your book. That's it. Your, you even gave me your email. That's a, that's a, um, he almost gave a, his address. That's a brave <laughs> thing. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. When you started saying that. I was like, thing, I don't care. I ain't got nothing to hide. But Amy is, uh, Amy, that's really the email Amy checks all the time. So I really just put all that pressure that's on That's outstanding. <laughs> what about you, Caleb? I'm on Instagram, but honestly, I think can't remember my handle i think it's like caleb wilder seven or something but i mean usually you know with the three of seven community obviously i go by gadwall shoveler so <laughs> good luck finding caleb guys if you want to follow him good luck you just going to do your best yeah exactly I don't, I don't really do that much entertaining stuff but you know i post stuff every now and again outstanding man all right well thank you guys again for tuning in and um lord willing We'll talk to y'all next week. Love y'all. Enough said.